On Thursday, the 30th of September, Chevrolet will introduce a whole new kind of six-passenger automobile. A truly beautiful car that's both right for the times and right for the people. One with even more headroom, more rear seat legroom, and more trunk room than last year's full-size Chevrolet. The new Chevrolet. It's more than a new car. It's a whole new ball game. September 30th at Chevrolet showrooms everywhere. Come, enter the halls of medicine. Bring your sore and scratchy throat. Bring your cough. Bring your nose when it feels stuffy. Because the halls of medicine are Hall's Vapor Action Cough Suppressant Tablets. They quickly soothe your throat, quiet your cough, and make your nose feel clearer. Hall's Vapor Action Cough Suppressant Tablets. Come to the halls of medicine to feel better fast. We all have a face that we hide away forever. <laughs> that we take ourselves to show ourselves when everyone is gone. Some more satin, some more steel, some more silk, and some more leather. They're the faces of the stranger, Dion. But we love to try them on. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Da, da, da. I used to believe I was such a great romancer. And I came home to a woman that I could not recognize. So we probably just copyrighted the crap out of that by accident. Oh, yeah. That was fair use, though, because we were, it's um, either um, satire or we were paying homage. <laughs> yeah, true. Yes. And it's, yes. Also, it's also clearly very linked to the subject that we're discussing today. Oh, that is true. Holy crap. <laughs> the faces of the stranger. Murder by illusion. We love to try them on. Murder by illusion. Don't be afraid to try again. Okay. Um, welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I'm Jay Blake, and with me as always... Dion Baia. That's me. And we are here today... Back again, and we're doing we're we're doing an old throwback. We're doing a format we haven't came back to for ye- many moons, many moons. We haven't done this format. We we we, we did it last summer, not that long ago. Did we do two together? Yeah, we did a Wizard of Oz and Return to Oz. Ah, for fuck's sake! You're right. Never mind. <laughs> oh, I was thinking sake. it hasn't been since. But folks, beep 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 beep. That's our old Scotty joke. Remember, Scotty? We need a what the fuck? What a <laughs> I can't do it, Captain. You need to do it. Foot, foot, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> we used to get a lot of traction out of that that one. <laughs> but Captain, the dinner thing, Christmas, do it, Scotty. Foot, foot. <laughs> this is the crew. <laughs> Scotty's like, come on! I was still talking to him. Um, uh, I was thinking back that we haven't done it since Ninja Turtles because back then we did the double feature of Ninja Turtles and Secret of the Ooze. And, we did. Um, we did Ninja Turtles and a little epilogue of Secret of the Ooze. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess we should have we should have did a little more um, of 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 a um, you know we, we were still feeling it out. You know, it was, it was late okay. one I mean, really, Saturday late night. Yeah, you know, all the setting of the table you know. was the same. Oh, that was true. It was it was for both. Yeah, and then uh, maybe if you broke down the minutes per first movie to second movie, you'd uh, you know you'd see what we were talking about here. But uh, especially last year when we did um, Wizard of Oz, you're right. We 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 probably you know that was a good we spent on Wizard in Return. Yeah, we uh, probably spent about and then four, all the setup four hours equally on each movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? And then we were then. <laughs> It was my fault. We were naming the wrong Brahm story. We, were, we had the wording wrong of the original. It was like the Wonderful World of Oz, but we were calling it the the, the World of Oz or something. Whatever. And then Close we got enough. another email that. Then remember it. somebody left a message like, Their Wizard of Oz show is full of misquotes and misinformation, <laughs> fake news. And we're like, What are you talking about? Yeah, what do you Jesus, want? Jesus, what do you want for nothing? Like two weeks. Yeah, what do you want for nothing? <laughs> I was like, we I was never like, said we were three experts. weeks of my life. We never claimed <laughs> no. to be authorities on the subject. Blake bought the entire Brahm series and read every twenty books or whatever it was for the I whole did. darn thing. Took me about and I went back six and watched days. that. Uh, yeah, and I watched that Italian that whole uh, animated show. Remember the uh, they had the animated Wizard of Oz show. The Italian, watched that whole sucker. The Italian splatter uh, adaptation. <laughs> that would be amazing, oh, like an Italian horror like movie like a, version like a, of Wizard of Oz. Yeah, like a dirty <laughs> a, 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 a horror. Well, that Return of Oz is a horror, but yeah, like a like a exportation movie. Like in the in the levels just to get to get a, you know, thirty um, five year old or forty year old Argento direct it, yeah. to direct it. I mean that shit's got to be some real public domain, right? Or is like Disney screwed all that? Yeah, up? Bob's public domain. No, 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 no. Disney didn't have any. Disney had the the second one, but no, no, that's that's public maybe domain. Maybe we should maybe. do an Italian uh, style version of uh, Wizard of Oz. Of Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's in Brahms in the news now. Bombs in the news now, but not for nothing. We need to talk about here. <laughs> but uh, yes, that would be that would be very interesting to do it Italian, you know, and get like a real attractive female Italian girl, like oh, signorina, scusi, yeah. scusi, scusi, a wizard of Oz, and nothing classy like Argento, more like Fulci or Luigi Cosi style, where it's like <laughs> real Ooh. gritty. <laughs> yeah, it's like zombie when they go to the island, and it's all like real. Like it's maybe maybe that you, you can play with the world settings. We're, Black and I are gonna just brainstorm. This we're gonna, you know, it's like, scratch what we were gonna talk about. We're just gonna. Yeah, sit, we're gonna talk you're about gonna hear our, the creative our, process in action. Our visioning. You could have um, have it be completely one movie at the beginning. You know, have it be like some style, and then when you go like maybe like some Italian like uh, La Strada kind of a style, and then they go into the into the past and then you're on the zombie island so you're actually playing within genres of the italian cinema yeah. oh know? scarecrow so like i'm wave. so scared <laughs> yeah, exactly don't worry it's all dubbed wrong <laughs> everything and then even maybe a sequence it's a different person because remember how they switch they had to switch out uh, Ep- uh what's his face from barnaby jones oh yeah, yeah. Uh, as scarecrow you know so you have it be epson you have it be uh, a different person for a take <laughs> Ah, uh, we had to use him. So anyway, we're doing tonight a double feature, and uh, it's very exciting. We used to always, when we would do stuff down the alley or something, I would suggest, and Blake said, I don't know, man. I don't know if anybody's going to listen to this episode. We'll have to see who is going to like this double feature right here, because we we went way down the alley. We realized the alley is deep, t- 
turns and there's a back back alley. And we said, wow, that's where they keep the dumpsters. I don't even remember we how we came there. up with it. So I think you brought it up. You're like, what if we did like FX? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, I was, well, we were rattling names off. I was like, you know, I would do, um, you know, Cloak and Dagger, Daryl, FX. You like FX. I do FX. Go back a minute. That's good. I know you do what we do all those, but the, but um, we just showed our hand at some of the ones on our list that have been on there for years. And then I think you were but, like, "Well, uh, what we're if we did for... an FX FX two double feature?" And I was like, "Fuck it, let's do it, <laughs> let's do it." Because I was like, "We," because I, I, I said, "Like I do both of them because the FX two is just as big as FX one for me." And then yeah, we were like, "Just do a double feature." Yeah. So we're doing tonight FX from nineteen eighty six, and then we're doing AKA, FX AKA FX Murder by Illusion. Yes. And then FX2, 1991, a.k.a. FX2, The Deadly Art of Illusion. Yes, and that's weird because I never saw those titles. I, I, I don't think on the theatrical box I would ever saw, or the posters, did they have... Maybe FX2 had the, the, the Deadly Art of Illusion on it, but I don't remember having the subtitle of FX. Yeah, I don't know... Murder if, by Illusion. If we were kids, we ever would have... Thought of it as being part of the title or just being like a description on the box, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and this is a movie where, um, how old was I? I don't remember how old I was when I saw the first movie. Um, so I can't remember where, uh, how I saw this first, but it was definitely something I'm pretty sure. Like, we went to the video store, and my dad's like, Hey, you know, you're gonna like this, you should check this out, and uh. At the time, it was my introduction to Brian Dennehy, who uh, grew up in the town over from my mother in Derby, Connecticut. So uh, that was always when I was little, like when we went to First Blood, the, aside from the allure of it being Stallone, it was like, yo, Brian Dennehy's in this too. And we just brought him up a couple months ago, I think. Oh, he passed he away. Passed. Oh. Yeah. Um, and he passed uh, non-COVID related, but he passed in New Haven because uh, he lived in Connecticut. And uh, I think of just, you know, because he was getting up there in years or had some other complications. And then, uh, you know, we rented this thing and, and it was like, you know, Denny, he's in it. And this was also my first introduction to Jerry Orbach. So by the time, you know, we got to like, uh, Jesus, Dirty Dancing or even, um, uh, well, Prince of the City is much earlier. But like, you know, Beauty and the Beast or I was I, when I was little, I used to watch um uh, 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 Murder She Wrote with my mom, and he he would show on Murder She Wrote. I think he he was so popular on Murder She Wrote that he got his own series for a minute. Uh, Jerry Orbach, Murder um, He Wrote. Yeah, Murder He Wrote, Murder He She Said. I think it was an <laughs> Agatha Christie, uh, Marple uh, story. So anyway, so I remember watching this when I was little, loving it, and then knowing it so that when the second movie came out, me and my best friend Martin at the time, we were head over heels waiting for two to come out. Uh, I can't recall. I forgot. I was supposed to uh, look that up. If I saw this in FX2 in the cinema, I feel like I didn't. But then when I think about it, I feel like I had a ticket stub because you and I used to collect our ticket stubs. I feel like I had an FX2, like looking down. I have a memory of looking down at that FX2 ticket stub. So maybe I did see this in the cinema. But uh, this was FX2 was big for me too, which they say FX2 didn't do as well as FX1. But man, I loved FX2 when it came out. And but I had seen I feel like FX once or twice, but I feel like I I'd only seen FX2 entirely through maybe once the first time I saw it, and then I maybe caught clips of it on TV, the beginning or the end, or the parts with the clown, and then that was it. Yeah. I uh, how are you? My my. 
my uh, my journey with FX is slightly more convoluted. <laughs> uh, I remember seeing the preview for FX2. And yeah. I can't remember if I saw it on television for the theatrical release or at the beginning of a rented videotape. You know what I mean? FX2. Yeah. For like it's on vi- and, but, and it had a sweet trailer. That's what really grabbed everybody. Yeah. You know, how awesome that trailer was with the opening sequence and the, and the it's all, you know, but we'll get to that. And I saw that, I saw the trailer and it like blew my fucking mind. I mean, it was 1991. So, yeah. What I well, this was, plays into a lot of the themes we, we, we always talk about. Yeah. You know, that Which we it, bring up spe- uh, specifically on this show. And then that's when I, we were watching this tonight. I was like, this plays into everything we talk about on Sleepovers. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it before, which is like, um, both Dia and I, when we met each other, you know, we both met each other because of our love of cinema and we wanted to make movies. And we both kind of came to the, the desire to make movies on a similar trajectory as kids, which is I would imagine a lot of people our age had a similar trajectory, which is like we grew up in the age of special effects and yeah. and the behind-the-scenes things, shows like Movie Magic and and all these specials about how to make movies, even predating, obviously, special features on DVDs because DVDs didn't exist yet, but... This idea of like pull, pulling the curtain back and showing us the yeah. you know what was it happening. It seems also new. Yeah, it was just um, it was an age of showing how they did the, the ma- how they made the magic tricks. You know what I mean? They were all the heavenly glory and and special effects guys became kind of like the rock stars of cinema. I mean, uh, you know, we grew up, you know, post. Exorcist, but you know, we grew up with like American Werewolf in London and The Thing. So, like, guys like Rick Baker and Rob Bottin and Tom Savini, these guys were like yeah. Dick Smith, these were huge. Yeah. And uh, so, when I saw this preview in 1991, I was like, whoa, like, I had to see this movie. I never, I didn't know there was a first one. And I, it's funny because I don't know if he rented the second one. But at some point, I was talking to my brother and uh, back then, and I was like, there's this movie, FX2, and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you know, it's a sequel, right? (laughs) And I was like, like, what do you mean? There's an FX1? And he's like, yeah, but it's not called FX1. It's called FX. And I was like, oh. Uh, And then I rented FX. Um, And so I probably saw the second one first. And okay. then, through the stupidity of youth, <laughs> never put, the magic of the video store, never put two and two together that there was <laughs> that, that the two meant that there was a that was the second movie. Um, well, it's just like you don't ever think you don't think that far ahead. It was not like it's ignorance. You just don't. You're like, oh, it didn't click with you. You're like, I guess that must mean what it means. Yeah, and but uh, I probably haven't seen either one of these movies since then. So. Um, it's been at least, at the very least, 30 years, probably. Yeah, it, it's been a very long time for me. And th- that was another weird thing. Like, I remembered, I remember bits of one. I must have only well, seen one I once. guess more like 15 years, uh, 25 years, not 30, but still. Well, it's, it's, I think it was more <laughs> like 30 for me, or th- you're like, well, you know, at least around the time this. Maybe the yeah, first one for you. Just, 
would have been 30. Anyway. Um, and I, like, I only remember bits of the first one. Like, I remember the, uh, Jerry Orbach having his pacemaker and then using that against him at the end. Um, and, I, you know, uh, I loved his step van in it. I mean, I was a, like, when I was really little, the first thing I ever wanted to be was like a truck driver because I loved Mack trucks. I loved trucks. I loved my Matchbox cars. So when I was really, really little, I was like, I'm going to drive trucks when I grow up. You know, and then, like, you know, uh, that's quickly turned into like i love movies (laughs) 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 and um so like i loved his step van i thought that was so cool the van because he had like it was like his mobile uh you know uh studio in the back it could do whatever he wanted in the back of that thing uh and what else did i remember from the first one uh a couple things you know like i said denny of course and then with the second movie, man, like the opening, uh, with the with the sequence, with the with uh, what we could talk about later, with the with the alien robot, and um, and then the clown, and then when you and I were watching this, uh, the second one, I suddenly had a flashback which you hadn't thought about in twenty nine years or twenty eight years, is the sequence when the like Terminator Hitman guy is in his apartment and he puts on the clown outfit. I hadn't thought about in 30 years that, oh, he fights him with the clown. And then, like, you know, yeah. that sequence, you know, where he's in the outfit, the body, and the, and the thing. So that was hilarious. And, like, you know, because it's, it's so weird when you, like, make it like a, a, like a neural pathway that hasn't been used in 30 years, and then it, that thing lights up and strikes again. Yeah. So um, that was very exciting to suddenly have a memory that I know I haven't had since before I met you. I was like, wow, you know, so, um, and, you know, it's, it's, I don't, I feel like these are hard because I don't know how these are going to hold up nowadays. And um, I think people for like our age who have an affinity for their movie will like them a lot and think they're great. They're great, great snapshot of the 80s, great snapshot of the early 90s, which is kind of still the 80s. Um, But I think that the emphasis here is for people who haven't seen it back when they came out and had no history and they go back and listen to it or see it now, maybe because we're talking about it or they just see it out of of their own volition. Is that like, that was so new back then. So I feel like audiences, like for me, uh, one of the earliest memories I remember is like, it was either Conan, I don't know which Conan movie it was. Uh, What year did The Destroyer come out? That's like eighty one or eighty two, right? It's yeah. like before Terminator, right? If I remember correctly, so it might have. It's either a special feature for for the Destroyer or maybe Red Sonia, but it was some behind the scenes thing. Uh, it even looked like PBS, where some guys in a, in like a, um, a special effects shop, and he's showing this like he's wearing like a kind of like a it's like a body brace like is in this movie and he's got a big sword and he's explaining to the cameras like so if you just touch the sword here and he touches it and then everything just starts bleeding right there or if he just touches it here it starts bleeding right there and this is me having a memory that's 35 to maybe 38 years old so i might be wrong if someone finds that special feature, but it fascinated me. I was like, wow, you know, like you're saying it's illusion. So I feel like audience as well, even like people, our parents age, when they saw the first FX movie, when they're explaining, you know, this is a squib or this is a fat, you know, and they put the, and then they have the, you know, the button for him to hit, blow the squibs. That was so new where I feel like nowadays you're kind of like, Oh, cause the magic is gone. Every that's yeah. normalized. That's become part of the, the genre. So I feel like that had a big hook. And especially in that with the second one too, that new technology of being able to manipulate stuff, and you know, um, so yeah, yeah, I think that um, I think they both 
hold up really well. Like I said, I haven't seen these movies since the early 90s. And in some ways, I think the first one <clears throat> holds up even better than the second one does. Yeah, but, I'd uh, agree. You know, watching it this time around, <clears throat> what I found interesting about it in the context of us in this movie is that... Uh, you and I... <laughs> it's probably been brought up on the show before. But Dion is a lifelong MacGyver fan. And though I... Oh, yeah, I was going to... And though I watched MacGyver uh, on occasion as a kid, it wasn't really my show, uh, I didn't have as much of a knowledge about MacGyver as Dion does now. But I've been watching... For the last year, I've been watching MacGyver. Um and what's interesting is if you listen to the podcast, there's an evolution there where we'll talk about. I'll bring MacGyver up occasionally, and Blake's like, yeah, it wasn't my bag. But then in the past year, you've been you're, you're binge-watching. <laughs> I've know, been watching. I was Ma- doing Cagney and Lacey five years ago. You're watching MacGyver. I've been watching MacGyver three episodes a week because it's on Heroes so I'm and Icons. getting late-night texts. <laughs> yeah, Heroes and Icons. So I'm getting late-night texts like, yo, that, that Columbia Necktie episode with the Challenger Club was intense. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, I know, man. So, and you're bringing me back to memories I haven't had in 30 years. The reason why I bring up MacGyver is that I think this movie plays uh, – for us today, more for you specifically back then, on two levels, which is like the wonder of special effects and the affinity we have for the making of movies and special effects. So that aspect of this movie kind of uh, captures our imaginations, uh, especially back then when we were kids, but also this idea that <clears throat> he's MacGyvering the hell out of shit in these two movies. <laughs> I know, yeah. The, especially, I, the, I wrote... I, I was going to say, I, and I wonder if... That was part of the appeal of this movie, because if this movie came out in 86, that means, like, MacGyver came out in 85, right? So, Yeah, uh, so you're in the season two or season three by the time I saw it. So I didn't might see have the been, first one in the theater. I'm wondering if, like, the act of, of, if the movie almost got greenlit in a way because of, like, the MacGyvery aspects of it. Especially the, the next, the second one has way more MacGyvering going on than the first one. Yeah, I have that as a note in my in my notes. Like, wow, he's MacGyvering the hell out of shit left and right here. <laughs> so that could have been also the appeal for me as a young Dion, you know, because I used to carry a pocket knife when I was able to be allowed to carry a pocket knife that I would lose incessantly, you know, and I wanted to be MacGyver. When I, when I grew up, I wanted to be Mr. Rogers and MacGyver all in one. And I <laughs> failed pitifully. I fail pitifully. Um, but, um, yeah, he's doing a lot of that behind-the-scenes stuff and this and that. So uh, it was it's definitely something that intrigues. You know, it's very intriguing. And uh, they're just unique movies. It, they're just – it's weird because I feel like people could probably go through their life and never even heard of these. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it's like this was a – I mean, it was, the first one was so popular and so good. Uh, that they greenlit a second one and it came out and, it, and that came and went and then they even got us a series that um, Blake and I I think both didn't know about until we got in we went into recording this and that just slipped by the uh, the annals of history yeah you know there's also the a side thing as to the appeal of these movies to me uh, for me as a kid is that for some reason to this day my dad is a huge Brian Brown fan. If you ever Sweet. bring up Brian Brown around my dad, he'd be like, Brian Brown. <laughs> of course. I don't know why he didn't make more movies. You know, <laughs> and I and I don't know why Brian Brown I mean, at least more American movies. He might have a pretty pretty lengthy Australian filmography, I don't know. Uh but you know, other than the, these movies and cocktail, like I can't think of any like other, you know, really juicy parts that he had in 
in American movies. I know he's popped up in things. But uh, so the Brian Brown aspect, and because of my dad's love for Brian Brown, I've always had like a weird affinity for Brian Brown inexplicably, other than the fact that my dad likes him. But uh, so Brian Brown was also a big selling point for me. And uh, I wonder why that, if that's why they cast him. If, if they, you know, you need a lead, uh, you know, you, you want to bring somebody either in who is really uh, known to audiences or if you want something that's a little different, a dynamic. So him being an Aussie, yeah. they're like, you know what? You know, that might, because when I was little, you know, I mean, this is right. I think Crocodile Dundee is either 86 or 87. So, you know, I think I might have saw this before I saw Crocodile Dundee. So it's like, you know, that whole Australian allure. I was like, just, just, you know, it's like, you know, it sucks you right in. And he's such an appealing guy. Yeah. I mean, he's good looking. You know, he's, you know, let's, let's, uh, make an admission on this show that I think everybody has to agree with back in the day. We all wore tidy whities So, <laughs> you know, I'm starting to get back into the tidy whities now as I get older. I'm like, you know what? You know, I, I went from tidy whities to when I got to high school, I wore boxers. Wore boxers for... Then I went into boxer briefs. And mm-hmm. I like the boxer briefs now because it gives you both worlds. Um, but you know what? I started... I got a pack of tidy whities in the past couple of years, but that, that's hard to keep them clean. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can go tidy other color if you want. Yeah, um, so he's he's rocking an '80s pair of tidy whities in this, and then when you, six years later in the next movie, he um he's look you know he says he's still looking good, you know he's, his body's still kind of jacked. He's got he he's, looks exactly know, he's, the he's same. Yeah, though. it's 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 pretty unbelievable. Um, but uh, yeah, he did some you know Australian shows and stuff like that, and then he came over here, and then he did Cocktail, and Cocktail was huge. Yeah. And there's even a subtle joke in FX too about Cocktail, yeah. which I think people back then would get but now you know it may pass by if you're not thinking of it uh he was in that journey to the center of the earth tv series in 1999 uh brian brown and um i feel like he did some other movie that was oh he was in gorillas in the mist uh, oh, yeah, yeah. about diane fossey um uh, with sigourney weaver that was also rick baker special effects uh with the apes and the gorillas and stuff like that so i felt like he was around i mean the one-off of having cocktail with tom cruise when tom cruise was had he had all hits uh in that era you know yeah. right around he was top coming gun off and like forward. top gun and days of thunder and the outside is days like of thunder whirlwind. yeah the whirlwind of, of, of tom so, cruisery of, 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 of pure cruisery yeah yeah well i you know a couple of things um you know i like to go through the uh i like to go through like the credit list and talk about people but uh so I'll do that now, and then we can get it more into the movie. Directed by Robert Mandel, who um, yep. I guess was known as basically a New York theater director uh, and a bit of an arty filmmaker. He directed a movie that came out the same year as FX in 1986 called Touch and Go, which uh, yep. me and the brothers Hastings have a, a weird affinity for. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I uh, I think I I must have bought it on video, or we... Somehow we watched Touch and Go, and the funny um, story behind Touch and Go real quick is that uh, Steve and I were going to go to a horror convention with an old friend of Dion's and mine from college, Aaron. Aaron. And Aaron canceled at the last minute. And, that's, that's Aaron uh, for you. And since, Steve, and since Steve didn't know Aaron very well, he was very disappointed. Whereas I was like, eh. Well, Aaron, 
Aaron's one of those guys where he either cancels on you last minute or just doesn't show up because he forgets. <laughs> he forgets. So you're, you're standing at a, <clears throat> you're in a parking lot. You're like, <laughs> and also back then he was. It still does, but back then especially he was suffering from like a, a, a yeah, a, a, like an illness that would flare up. Uh, in that ways. was misdiagnosed quite a bit. Yeah, you know, so for he was years, going through a lot of treatments that he probably didn't. You know, Lyme disease, this and, and that. So he was having treatment that he didn't even need. And I think he just wasn't feeling well, so he canceled. And so we got, uh, we, uh, Stephen, Steve was mad, and uh, but we said, okay, well, we'll sit at home. This is what Steve, I live with the, with the uh, Brothers Hastings in a house. So uh, Steve and I sat down and we started watching Touch and Go. And like, I don't remember why. Like I said, maybe I had a video of it. Um, it stars Michael Keaton. Oh yeah, and it opens with like Michael Keaton, and he's a he's a hockey player in it. And it, this uh, is weird because I I looked this up the other night. I never heard of this movie, and I yeah. watched the trailer, and it's like you know I know Clean and Sober, I know Mr. Mom, like his early stuff, and I'm like this this completely. So I watched the trailer, and I was like, what the fuck is this movie? <laughs> Touch and go, you know, and it's a long trailer. You're like, huh? And you're yeah, he starts off as a hockey player, and he gets involved with a kid. Yeah, yeah. But the but so we start watching this movie and Steve's brother Dave, who was also one of our roommates, he used to work at like Borders Books and Music until like closing, so he was working. And we started watching it. It opens with Michael Keaton running, like jogging through like around New York, with this music, uh, like this synth music. And the minute we started watching it, I hit like stop and I said, "We gotta wait for Dave." Like, we can't watch this without Dave because the music was just so fucking perfect and it was Michael yeah. Keaton. And so we stopped and uh, Steve was a musician and I play guitar and Steve plays keyboards. And we sat and we jammed to the touch and go theme for like two hours. <laughs> well, you learn how to play it? Or how well, did Steve, you... Steve's like a really talented keyboard Yeah, he's player. a genius. Yeah. So Steve started just like, he figured it out and he started playing the touch and go theme. And then I would start playing guitar. We just jammed on it forever. And then Dave came home, and we're like, Dave, you know, get changed. But <laughs> you do guys it, are all tired. Wash up. <laughs> you know, like, we got to watch Touch and Go. And then we watched it. turned out the movie wasn't that great. But I'll always have a fond memory of it because of that theme and jamming out to it uh, with uh, Steve Hastings. But so he did Touch and Go. He, uh, in 1992, he did School Ties, which was a, a, a This movie. is the director. Um, Robert Mandel. Robert Mandel. Um, yeah, he did the substitute with Tom Berenger, which I feel like yeah, came movie. up recently on the show. Somebody else had something to do with the substitute. I feel like, um, and he directed the pi- he did a lot of TV, but he also directed the pilot to the X Files. Yeah, which is a big thing for us when we were little. I remember when that like seeing the preview next week, a new kind of show. So the pilot was very, uh, very big in our our childhood. He also directed um, around 1991 a movie called The Haunted. And that is actually the original case uh, about the Warrens, the the two guys who did Amityville, the, the psychic team, that The Conjuring's based off of, this movie The Haunted. They took The Conjuring basic story and they reappropriated it and put it like out in the woods in a house uh, in like, you know, Rhode Island or something. I forget, the, the Haunted takes place more in suburbia. And it's one of these movies you can find on YouTube. It's a TV horror movie. Uh, it's it's very, very good. And it, ha- it has in it, what's his face? Um... Jeffrey uh, DeMunn, if I'm pronouncing that right, who has been in a ton of stuff, but he was on Walking Dead 
uh, I forget what his name was, but he had the Winnebago. You know, and then he was, he, it was oh, his, yeah. he used to wear, he was the fishing cap. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's Jeffrey DeMond. He's in Green Mile. He's one of the guards. Yeah, he's in yeah, a lot of stuff. He's in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But he was, he's the goat. He's the, he, it's, he's the husband and the wife. They move into the house and the, the haunting starts happening. And it might even be that where he's, he's, um, accosted and raped by a ghost, which is, might be part of the original story, which I might be getting my ghost stories, but that might be. Uh, that movie, but that was also directed by Robert Mandel. Yeah. So, but they grabbed him because they didn't want to have, they didn't want to get an action director, right? So yeah. when they, the producers, uh, when they, so basically these two guys wrote this script and there's not really a whole, but a lot of information about one of them, uh, Robert T. Meganson and Gregory yeah. Fleeman. Um, Gregory Fleeman doesn't seem to have done much in the business. Robert T. Meganson. Uh, seemed to have written and directed a couple of low-budget horror movies and stuff like that. But I guess they came up with the script uh, for this, which, uh, you know, resembles in a lot of ways uh, Three uh, three Days in the Condor. Um, Fabulous the, movie from the, the Robert 70s Redford, Robert Redford movie. And I don't know if that was an Max inspiration. I don't know if that was an inspiration for them, but it, they wrote the script. Uh, um, and that so- movie basically is just where it's like a guy who I think he, he was beginning in the, in the New York office in the CIA, but he, he leaves for coffee, and then the whole satellite office, the secret office CIA, gets killed, and he comes back, and then he luckily wasn't there, but then suddenly uh, the killers, I think they put him on it, and he's on the run. Yeah. So that's the, the similarity there, where the whole movie, Robert Redford's trying to say, like, it wasn't me, it was somebody else, I saw him, and I'm going to figure out who it was, and I'm going to figure out what it's about. So and so apparently they wrote this with the intention of writing like a spec uh, TV low budget TV movie and um, somehow uh, it got into the hands of producer uh, Jack Weiner or Weiner yep Vina um, who had done a bunch of like world you know a bunch of war mo- a couple of world a uh, couple of war movies like uh, the eagle has landed and escape to athena and uh, this movie called green ice uh, and he read the script and he liked it he thought that this seemed to be more of a theatrical movie than a um television movie so he pushed for it to, to get a theatrical release and he wanted to make it and his producing partner is uh, Dottie fade or fayed I mean, and yeah, uh, he, unfortunately, he's uh, best known for being the romantic interest of Princess Di and dying with her in that car crash where she yeah in she Paris. died. But he was a he was yeah. a producer, and he was an yeah, executive. He, she got married with him after, or got involved with him after she uh, divorced. Yeah, and uh, that was the one where she you know you'd see him uh, she, her being on the yachts and people taking pictures of her and stuff like that and they wouldn't leave her alone and then that was that night that they were together which was we were in college at the time i think or something like that maybe yeah when princess died died but he was in the car with her when they were speeding away from the paparazzi yeah and uh he ex- was the executive producer of like chariots of fire and uh, he later uh was executive producer of hook the spielberg movie yeah and so uh they take this script and they decide to make it as a feature-length movie uh, as dion was kind of indicating they chose Robert Mandel because they didn't want to get an action director for it. They wanted to get someone who they thought would play up the drama and the characters and hopefully in that way give it, uh, in that sense, give it kind of a different feel than some of the other movies of the time, which were like the Jerry Bruckheimer, Michael Bay, 
action movie like action movies and uh you know of course this was the beginning to be the heyday of the schwarzenegger stallone um yeah. com- coming right up on the uh van damme seagal movies <laughs> i mean you have a there's a picture of the mark this rambo first bloods over you know the build the boards the over the post boards when they crashed the car yeah. so that this is right in the era of uh you know those big action movies commando and rambo and stuff like that so, so they you can see why they don't want to have it be an action and have it get schlocky i guess you know they want yeah. to be kind of more se- serious Although guys like George Picas Matos or Ted Kotcheff, who did the first, who did the original, uh, the first First Blood, you know, the first Rambo movie, yeah. um, you know, those, I mean, all these guys who did these movies were uh, really great directors and probably would have done a really great job with this movie. But you can see yeah, the, yeah. you can see the thought process behind getting someone who, because he was originally like, I don't know why you're asking me to do this. Like, I'm not an action thriller director. Like, I don't. And they're like, no, that's why we want you. We want you to be able to. And I don't know if that really comes through so much when you watch the movie. Um, that he's not an action director. Well, that, or that like they wanted him. Well, to yeah, know. like that they really want to play up the the human side of it because um, it yeah. does. It doesn't come across to me as being any more so than something like, especially the first Rambo movie or whatever. Uh, but uh, you know, going just quickly going through some of the other credits um the guy who shot this movie and i can't even i'll try to pronounce his name but uh Miro, miroslav uh andrichek there's a bunch there of ac- there's a bunch of uh, accents over his last name but this guy is like a cinematography legend i mean he started this guy <laughs> he started in the 60s he did uh, the movie if in 68 oh lucky man 73 i'm just going to run through a couple of the titles that i thought we like oh lucky man were worth mentioning uh for for dion's sake <laughs> and my sake and people uh hair in 1980 Silkwood, which was a big movie in '83 with Meryl Streep, Amadeus, of course, was huge. But then things, also things like Funny Farm. He also connected with uh, Petty Marshall, did Awakenings, League of Their Own, Riding Cars with Boys. Wow. Um, so he did a, a lot of really great movies. And also, the editor is kind of a big deal because that's a, also a story um, that's worth getting into later on involving the editor, which is Terry Rawlings, who. Uh, he he edited The Sentinel, which was a horror movie from the 70s, which uh, I think stars Barbara Hershey. A very strange movie. Um, uh, but then he also was really Scott's editor for uh, the Alien, Blade Runner, Legend. He later did Alien 3. He edited No Escape with Ray Liotta. He edited GoldenEye, uh, yeah. which is interesting. And... Um, like I said, there's a story involving him that once we start getting more into the story, we can talk about. But then, of course, the guy who did the music is one of my favorite composers of all time, who, uh, unfortunately, I didn't talk about with him about FX when I he was featured on an episode of Scored to Death, the podcast. <coughs> but Bill Conti, who uh, most famously did the music for uh, most of the Rocky movies, including the original one, he did the score for this movie. And uh, did the, a lot of stuff when you look at his when you look at his filmography. Like I was surprised Cagney Lacey. I'm like, what Cag-? you know, so it's like <laughs> if you go through he's got a lot of gems you are you're like, yeah. Wow, you he know, did a lot of so lo- most, he did a lot of great T V themes. Like he did the T V theme yeah. to Cagney and Lacey, the T V theme to Dynasty. Uh, yeah. and then he won the Academy Award for all the right stuff. He uh did all the karate kid move uh the original karate kid movies, not the remake with uh, Will Smith's son. Um 
but uh, Bill Conti's victory with Stallone. Uh, yeah, uh, he did. He's done. Uh, he did the remake of uh, Thomas Crown Affair. The uh, yeah. Did I? Did he do Over the Top? I don't think he did Over the Top, but he did Fist. I don't know why that's coming to mind. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what I'm. Thinking <laughs> and he did, And I think he did Paradise Alley for Stallone. Um, but yeah. he did all kinds of movies. Uh, we we focused on. Some of my oh, Masters of the Universe, which is a movie that we have an episode yeah. on. Karate Kid, we did on the show as well. The first Rocky, we did on the show uh, on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. But uh, so my interview with him focuses on a smattering of things that I like. But then uh, he also did a score for a movie called Nomads, um, which was John McTiernan's first released feature, and Pierce, Pierce Brosnan and Pierce Brosnan's yeah. first feature. Uh, he did the music. And you brought for- that up on. We talked about that because maybe in, in a prior episode we were talking about Conti and then you brought that up about how you have an affinity for that movie because it's just so out there and because yeah. it's, it's, you know, those, maybe, maybe it was a John McTiernan movie we did, maybe Die Hard on that podcast or whatever, but whatever, or maybe Predator, we talk about that. Yeah, yeah. You brought that up a little bit, but that you have uh, an affinity for that. He did that. Sp- it's a weird movie. Yeah. It's really cool though. Yeah. Uh, and he, yeah. and he did, uh, Bill Conti did that score with Ted Nugent, so uh, I also have an an episode of Score to Death the podcast where I interviewed Ted Nugent specifically about working with Phil Conti on Nomad, um, and that must be the first time he ever. That's like he's like, "Wow, you want to talk about that?" <laughs> I later, it's funny. Somebody else later, I was advertising, or I was telling somebody that I did it on Facebook, who runs a really popular horror movie website and does a lot of things. He used to edit Fangoria magazine for a while back in the day, and uh, he was like, "Oh, wow, you." got Nugent to talk about it. He's like, I've been trying to get Nugent to talk about it forever. So apparently, I don't know, apparently he's had other offers (laughs) according to this guy. Or maybe this guy was just talking to the wrong people. But uh, Nugent... It's your connections, Blake. It's your esteem. Nugent seemed happy to talk about it with me. And of course, uh, cast-wise, we talked about Brian Brown, uh, Brian Dennehy, uh, which interesting? Could you ever think of a time when Brian Dennehy was young? He always seems like <laughs> he was at least fifty no. years old. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's youngerish in First Blood, but he's still older in First Blood because he, he's the seasoned sheriff. But he's always this big. It's and he's he's like in these two movies he's cast as like a ladies' man, so he's always like towering <laughs> over the ladies, you know, and like you know what do you? I'm gonna give you some sugar and take you to Jamaica, and they're like, oh Brian, so you know he's got some sexy charisma but this cast list is all regulars that we've had on the show you know a lot of them um uh cliff d young who plays the 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 agent that drafts um uh very uh, familiar face for for our generation he's in a lot of stuff yeah he's in uh he's in flight of the navigator and then he was in something else we did as well uh do you know what that is offhand no I felt like th- there's another movie we just did very recently that um, the, oh the craft he's in the craft uh, which we did as well and then he's in Suicide Kings which we didn't do uh, then you got Jerry Orbach who we brought up you know Jerry Orbach we've done Jesus Dirty Dancing on here we've done Beauty and the Beast on here um, I don't know if we've done another Jerry Orbach movie uh, Mason Adams who we brought up the night they saved Christmas who is <laughs> yes, the uh, new Brin. Yeah, you know, the, the Easter, you know, uh, Cadbury eggs. And he's the guy that we were joking was the uh, evil oil man, remember? He was like, you remember what happened to us in South yeah. America with Sorcerer? You got to, because uh, <laughs> we did, 
<laughs> Night They Saved Christmas, which was a really in the weeds movie with is, Art Carney as Santa. It's an unofficial sequel to Sorcerer. <laughs> it's an unofficial sequel to Sorcerer because it's about an oil company up north uh, drilling for oil and they're kind of impeding on the North Pole and uh, the North Pole. They, 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 there's a chance they may destroy the North Pole and it has a big cast actually, like Jacqueline Smith. Uh, there's a couple names in that. Um, and also we have Roscoe Orman who uh, was on Sesame Street. We just did set M- Muppets last week. Yes. And uh, who played Gordon. It's funny, you know, yeah, he played Gordon. So it's funny that we didn't know that was Gordon's day job. Was he was like a homicide detective? You know? <laughs> exactly. So it's very stressful. That's exactly what I was thinking about. He lives on Sesame Street. <laughs> it's like a very stressful job when he leaves. Yeah, he leaves Sesame Street. And he has to come back. And it's like, that's, there's a joke where we haven't covered it yet. Um, but Bronson's the original Death Wish. Um, when they're checking out, when, when the evil gang, Jeff Goldblum and them, they, they target um, Bronson, Paul Kersey's wife and child. They pick him up at a grocery store. And the punks are like, look at her and them over there. Let's follow him home. And the one that's ringing them out is Maria yeah, yeah. from Sesame Street. So I was like, Jesus, Maria, when she leaves Sesame Street, she, has, she goes to a dodgy neighborhood to get her to work at the grocery store. She should just stay on Sesame Street. Mr. Hooper should hire her there and have her be. So um, that's what I was thinking the whole time. And it's funny because he shows up, Ross shows up in a couple he's not the original Gordon we yeah. talked about the switch when we did the Muppet movie episode we talked extensively yeah, it was like uh, Harry, Holly Robinson Pete's dad right was the original yeah Gordon. and he had some problems with just uh, I, I forgot what happened with him but it was it was social problems or something with his son and he was very politically active at the time uh, so they ended up switching and then uh, but he's he's in like striking distance I feel like he was in Turner and Hooch I've only seen that movie once but I felt like he was a cop in Turner and Hooch, which I don't know if I'm wrong. Um, but he, it's so for me as a child, it was always weird um, to see these people you knew from these shows show up in something else. I remember when um, Blues Clues was big at the time, the American version, the guy who was the American Blues Clues guy. Um, and Blues Clues wasn't our era. We were older at this time, but it would be on. He did an episode of Homicide Life on the Street, I think it was called, uh, the show he was on, and he played a serial killer on the show. So there was kind of backlash, like m- my parents wrote in that they were upset to see him as a, as, a, as a serial killer on a cop show. And it's like, you know, they were worried about the, you know, so it got into that. So when I would see, like, you know, Gordon, I would be like, well, what's Gordon doing here, you know, or, or in a different context or later yeah. on... Um, the the other lady was on two two seven who used to be on uh, I'm pretty sure she was on two two seven who used to be on Sesame Street as well so it'd be funny seeing them out of out of context yeah uh, but th- and then uh, what other notable I feel like there was Tom then the, the female in this Tom Noonan who we've done this is sandwiched in between Manhunter and Monster Squad we haven't done Manhunter on the show yet we've done Monster Squad so you think about in his first one of his first movies or his first appearance is Wolfen, uh, mm-hmm. Tom Noonan. Yeah. So, you know, he had some speaking roles. He's a bad guy in Manhunter, which might not have been out yet. But so he has a pretty minor role in this movie. Uh, I mean, it's a big, it's a, it's a, it's a featured part, but yeah. you know, he doesn't have like any big lines. He says a couple words. Well, his part, but his then, part, you know, in, his part in Wolfen is probably on par with this. I mean, it's like a featured part. I mean, it's not like a huge. But doesn't part. he have a little more line? He's like a, he's like a geneticist, right? He's he's analyzing the hairs or something, yeah, yeah. and he rides but his he's bike. He's not in a whole lot um, of it, but his yeah, yeah. part has lines, you know. Um. So yes, Tom Noonan's in this, who we had on for uh, um, Monster Squad, and I feel I feel like we did another movie with Tom Noonan, or oh, no, and then we if you 
if you're a regular listener to the show, we have a Tom Noonan story, which probably shows up in either Monster Squad or... Um, I feel like the we, other movie we, was. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we, 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 there was a reason we, we teased it, and then finally we, we told our very funny, disturbing Tom Noonan story. Um, and uh, I feel like there's another, a, a couple other people that we, we, we had on this show. Well, there's someone uh, who I don't I, know. There's someone I don't know who if you would have picked up on, but uh, one of the other henchmen, you know, one of the yes. guys like Tom Noonan, uh, played yeah. his name is Paul Diamato is the actor's name. Yes, he's in Slapshot. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which yes, means, he's one of the bad. He's one of the hockey players that the that the Chiefs play at the end of the movie, like that, like the really that blue, bloody fight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, and and then um, uh, what's her name? Diane Verona. Am I saying her name right? Who's she's also in Heat. Uh, probably Venora, maybe. Venora Verona. Venora. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, her and then Martha Gil, uh, Gilham, who I'm probably saying her name wrong as well, uh, who's in Father of the Bride, Legend of Billie Jean. Uh, I was surprised he didn't end up with her at the end because when two, I was kind of disappointed when two starts up that he's not with her because that's his assistant in it. Yeah. But uh, we can get to that later. So uh, a lot of regulars on the show, but, uh, uh, but a Di- lot of familiar faces in the '80s. But you know, Dion mentioned that. Uh, Diane Venora's in Heat, but he, she plays Pal Pacino's wife, so it's like a big, it's a big part. Plays uh, yeah, yeah. Natalie Portman. I never mom. cheated on you, bitch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, love so that we're, movie. We're gonna do Heat at some point. Yeah, yeah, uh, that'll be a, a big one because then we'd have to go to the L.A. Takedown, the TV movie it's based on, and then there's there's like whole books written on Heat. And stuff, but there's a lot of familiar faces in this, which was really exciting because since I hadn't seen this movie in so long, you know, when all of a sudden when you see tall ass Tom Noonan get out of a car, you're like, hey, look, that's Tom Noonan, yeah, yeah. you know, or all the other people in this, um, you know, the other guy here, the the um, the uh, Brian Dennehy's partner Joe uh, Grafasi, uh, he's a familiar face yeah. that people have seen in tons of stuff, you know, uh, he's a very known act. He's almost like um, what's his name from. Um, uh, the father from Clueless, uh, you know, who's in a, he's the, the, in Commando, he's the head of the, he, he's the head, he's from that island, you know, yeah. he's the, he's the, you know, it's like you see, I, he's in Joe vs. the Volcano, Wise Guys, it's like you see these people, uh, Cherry, all through the 80s, and you don't think anything of them, who they are, you just, oh, look, it's him, so it's almost like a familiar face is comforting, yeah, yeah. but you don't ever think behind, of, you know. A lot of familiar faces, but there is somebody that we forgot to mention behind the scenes who's extremely important to this movie, which is the guy who did, they hired to do the special effects, which yeah. is the whole kind of like point of the movie. Um, they hired a special effects artist named John Sears, whose career started in the 60s, where he did the first, he did special effects for the first eight James Bond movies. Yeah. He also did a, and the st- Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and he did Star Wars. Well, he won, uh, he partially, you know, shares the Academy Award for Star Wars, but he also did uh, um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang, yeah. And uh, Star Wars, like Dion said, he did a movie called The Awakening. Which we did on this, we did on this podcast, Star Wars. We did do Star Wars, but he did The Awakening, which is, a cover and a soundtrack that many people will recognize. It's about, I think I believe it's a mummy movie, and uh, he did Outland with uh, Sean Connery. Yeah. Um, That's a crazy movie. But finding the right special effects guy was very important for a movie like this because it's about a special effects artist. 
obviously. Yeah, you know, and I was, and I wonder if we ever talk to Tom Savini again, because, you know, we've had Tom Savini over for sleepovers and stuff. <laughs> I wonder what his, you know, I wonder at the time if he was jealous, like, you know, because he could have been cast in this and he was acting at the time. Yeah. You know, he's in Night Riders, he's in Maniac, you know, he's in a good amount of stuff. What's and I feel like he could have carried a movie like this, you know, so I wonder if there was ever any kind of thought like, well, why don't we get like a Rick Baker? Why don't we get like, and maybe Dick Smith couldn't do it, yeah. but you know, why don't we get somebody who like a Tom Savini? Cause he's a good looking guy. You know, he's, he's, you know, got his shirt off the entire time. And, um, in, and Knight Riders, uh, also he's sex machine in from dust till dawn for people who don't know him, but also like the character of, uh, Raleigh Tyler, who Brian Brown plays when you see his, uh, workshop, you know, He's kind of indicated that he comes from the Savini world of like low budget horror movies and splatter yeah. movies and monster movies and and stuff like that. So uh, it does seem like he is, even though the movie he's working on at the beginning of this movie, at the beginning of of the movie, uh, seems to be like a, a like a different kind of picture. He's definitely coming from more of a, like a Savini yeah. style and world of special effects. And I, wonder, I mean, even like, Savini. He did Killing Zoe, the special, and that's not a horror movie. That's just yeah. a shoot 'em up movie. But that's or, after this. Did this. Yeah, but I mean, that's an example of see, like even Savini would do stuff once in a while that wasn't horror centric. Yeah, you know, so that's uh, not a big leap for this guy for Rory to be taken. Uh, I'm going to say Rory Gallagher um, you know, at the beginning of this. But uh, fantastic idea for a movie. Like a brilliant plot. I mean, a, a concept anyway. This idea of, of, you know, for anybody that hasn't seen the movie, uh, in a nutshell, he's a special effects artist and the police hire him to stage a, uh, the, the, the assassination, uh, a fake assassination of a mob guy who's going to snitch. So they want to make everybody think that he, that Jerry Orbach dies so that then they can put him into witness protection program because he because uh, he's gonna he's gonna testify or, or snitch on uh the uh got members of the mob so they hire uh special effects artist raleigh tyler to kind of make this illusion come to life in uh in a in the real world um and then through a very hitchcockian <laughs> style of uh plot devices he becomes that every man in a in a north by northwest <laughs> twist of fate who's now on the run um but it's interesting because it's like it's it the concept of now we're going to start to spoil the crap out of it so if you haven't seen it and you want to watch the movie i suggest you press pause now and come back later but um like it, it's it's a little convoluted because it's not, it's not like they want to kill uh, Jerry Orbach and and I guess maybe they want to pin it on Brian Brown, but it doesn't seem they want to pin it on Brian Brown. It just no, they just want him gonna, to be the, the assassin, yeah, pulling the trigger because he's the one that's staging the special effects. But so it's not like they're like we're going to kill Jerry Orbach and then we're going to arrest Brian Brown for this. They want to kill Jerry. They want. In the concept Publicly, of the movie, until, until the twist happens, we uh, we understand that yeah. uh, he may have actually killed uh, Jerry Orbach by accident, but uh, they're going to just kill him because he's a loose end and probably ditched the body somewhere and uh, 
but uh, then he ends up escaping, and then he's basically on the lam, and it's him surviving um, the game. And, yeah, using his <laughs> his yeah, and using his special effects to MacGyvering to to get through and get past stuff, and you know his bag of tricks. Um, and this is something that uh, hinges on, I think, the going back to an hour ago, the beginning of the you know, of us with, with, you know, that was also new. I think even the concept of the witness protection program was new at the time because when he mentions it, they're like, he's like, Oh, what's that? What's that stand for? No one really knows what, um, you know, WPP is. And then they're like, um, Oh, I work for the WPP. And they're like, well, what's that? Witness protection. We hide people. Oh, then later on in the movie, when Brian Denny, he's looking through the records with his, uh, female friend who comes back for the second movie, He's like, well, what's that right there? And then he's witness protection. So it's like, I feel like that might have been new at the time because, you know, it wasn't until like, uh, what's his, what's the name of that? Veloci, the Veloci papers was the first big case that you had like a, a mobster defect come out because it was so secretive. And then he's the one who, in very legendary style, and they did like a Dino De Laurentiis movie with Bronson playing him, where he turned state's evidence and spilled all the secrets about what the Costa Nostra is, how you become a made man, you know, that thing where you, you know, they, they put a card in your palm and you, you know, they burn the card of Mary and that and they touch your blood, all, all the whole process of everything. So uh, I guess that was beginning to happen. And then the other thing, which I think is 85, is there was a very big gruesome killing in New York City of uh, Castellan- Paul Castellano, by, we learn later, John Gotti and um, uh, Sammy the Bulgarvana, which was outside of New York City's uh, steakhouse called Sparks, where he was having dinner inside. Castellano was the older boss. John Gotti, who was below him, uh, he was the, the other, the, he was the older man. And John Gotti and these other guys uh, wanted to kill the boss, so they waited till he came out of the steakhouse and they publicly shot him at night, you know, in front of his, his Lincoln Town car. And they did it in such a fashion, so it was so... Uh, egregious. There's pictures all over the New York Post or whatever magazines of the guy dead in between the you know his open door and all the and his two other guys that were shot in front of him uh, to to make an example. So this was really happening at the time where you have these little turf wars, and that was after killing Castellano. That's how Gotti then became the head of the of the um, what's the name of his crime family? Uh, the the I forget the name of the what he who he was, the the Genovese, and then he was the, uh, I forget, and then Sammy the Bull was under him. So this was something that was actually really happening at the time. It's almost like ripped from the headlines, so that in a year later, when you have this movie, and you have Jerry Orbach, who's who's playing a bad guy who's going to turn state's evidence, they want to, they're so worried about him not surviving until he testifies, and then is taken away, they figure, well, if we kill him publicly, then they won't have this um, worry anymore that he's going to be killed before he testifies and then the switch is that it turns into the the three days of the condor because um he uh you don't know if brian brown really kills him and then they try to pin it on brian but they try to kill brian brown and then they try to pin it on him so yeah it becomes this yeah this cat and mouse game yeah i mean it's like i said a great idea especially like gambino gambino is his crime family useless information sorry you know, as I was kind of indicating at the top of the show, which is that, uh, you know, we're coming off of really the glory, you know, the glory days of practical effects. You know, by by 1986, we'd had the thing, we'd had, uh, you know, in terms of creature effects, we'd had 
uh, Werewolf Were- Were- in London with that transformation. Um, you know, we had we even had Nightmare Elm Street came out shortly before this. So this idea of that there are people that do make this movie magic and like, hey, what if you know, the police need something to be faked and who yeah. would they go to? They would try to go to someone who did this for a living and um That's why it seems like the idea was so new and so like you know, because we were like we were saying, we were just seeing like Rick Baker do the special effects for the werewolf transformation or you were just starting to see this on television. So for the police to, or the, the, I guess the feds, the, the witness protection people to go to him, it's, and then he's like, oh, I can't do it. You know, well, you know, why would you come to me? And he's like, you know, he's, he's very hesitant at first, you know, and then he slowly says yes. Well, and they it play, becomes they like this great 80s metage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because they say they're going to get the rival guy. And he's yeah. like, wait, what? You know, and that's how they, because that other guy, Cliff Young, turns on it really quick. He's like, you son of, I'll never see one of your movies again. <laughs> He's like, get the f- I, I, you know, I counted on you because it all comes off that they're all very big fans. So, like, when Cliff DeYoung goes in there to to to, to draft him, uh, and they first go into his apartment, uh, which is also it's a loft uh, building and it's also his studio. He's picking out all like, you know, oh, so I married an axe murderer, uh, freaking, you know, he's alive, Day of the Dead. You know, he's naming all these movies yeah, you know, that yeah. are fake. I mean, not the ones I'm naming. Although they so do you remember, can tell he's a I fan. Just, they do, they do mention I just remember Mama, which is a real movie. Yeah, and then later on, Dennehy's partner, when they go in there, he says it. He's like, oh, look, I dismembered Mama. So it's like, you know, this is how big he is. He's a rock star. And it's funny that you have an opening sequence, which also happens in the second one, where you have, like, this scene where, you know, uh, mass carnage, and it's not, and it's one of these things where they have, like, it's, uh, you know, how they shoot it. They do the entire scene, and then they're like, cut, cut, you know, so you have all these special effects and close-ups and this or that, and there's no kind of camera placements or setups, and they just do it. They're just doing one long shot, you know, and then it plays out in both movies like it's a real scene until you realize a director comes on and calls cut. So at the beginning of it, it's like there's a, it's a basically it's a, it is a mob hit yeah. where the guy comes in with a machine gun, you never see his face, he's in a trench coat, and he just shoots the entire restaurant. And I think it's, you indicate that it's his girlfriend there, uh, who's a blonde, who is what's her face, uh, Diane um, Venora. Uh, yeah, and then we also, and then when they call cut, she gets killed. They call cut. Brian Brown comes out, and then you realize, oh, he's romantically, he is like a rock star because he's dating the uh, the the lead in the movie, you know. And and he, it seems like he's almost just as important as the uh, as the principal actors in the movie. So it does get to that era where they were rock stars. Tom Savini and those guys were like the cock in the walk. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, it's so. interesting when they come out of that. So they have that opening scene that Deanne's talking about, and then they walk out like the day's shoot is done. And where they walk out from, where they walk out to the sidewalk, um, is on 53rd Street between 10th and 11th Avenue, which is a block away from where I used to live. Yeah. And right next door to where I used to work, which is Al Roker Entertainment's uh, uh, offices, used to be right next to that. So yeah. uh, when they walked out, I was like, hey, it's my old neighborhood. Um, interesting a bit of trivia about the studio that they walk out of there used to be the studio where they shot the television show Dark Shadows. Which you and I have been talking a lot about <laughs> lately because I've been watching it late at night on decades. It's my story now. 
So they walk out of the studio where they used to shoot that. And when I worked at Al Roker's, that's where the Wendy Williams show was shot, was in that studio. But yes. uh, I believe that studio has... So they shot Wendy Williams on the same soundstage as they shot Dark Shadows. Yeah. And, How uh, long we've come. Wow, look and, at that. Uh, I think now they might be tearing that down or have already torn it down. I don't know. I haven't lived in that neighborhood for, the, for a few years. I still walk. It's not that far away from where I live now, but uh, I still walk up there occasionally. But yeah. uh, I, I don't know. They do a lot of that in, in this where they shoot. A lot of it was shot in, uh, in Toronto, and I think more of the second movie shot in Toronto. Yeah. But they do have a lot of scenes that are in the city, and they look good. You know, they they really use the locale as well. That, like you're saying, they walk out of a, a 53rd and 11th. You're like, oh, you know, I recognize the neighborhood, or when they're in Central Park, or you know, yeah. They they uh, or even his. I think his doesn't his apartment overlook a bridge. It might be the Brooklyn Bridge or something. He's got like a nice. Yeah, I don't know where his movie. apartment is. I mean, I definitely there's definitely shots of bridges. I don't know. I don't remember if it's overlooking, but I was wondering, like, his uh, where he lives looks like it must be down, kind of like just before you get to the village in Soho, maybe. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you know, there is an interest. You know, I, I, I've said this on the show before. There's like when you live here, and I'm sure it's that way in L.A. too. Um, there's like this extra added layer of familiar familiarity. <laughs> Yeah, that like, like familiarity. When I'm watching the uh, movies, it's like, oh, like I know where that is. All right, like that's right near where my apartment used to be. Or I remember I saw um, there was a movie. I think it was called Fighting, and it was started, I believe Channing Tatum, and it was like uh, he fights an underground thing. And I saw that on the at the AMC on Forty Second Street, and where he lives in that movie is in this old uh, rundown hotel called the Blue Elk or Elk Hotel or something, which is a, less than a block away from that movie theater on 42nd Street. So, so you when saw I, it. So when I watched that movie, it was like, I, There's just, a block away. I just walked by that location to get to this movie theater to watch that. There, watch there is certainly something, you know, where I work in Midtown, it shows up a lot because it's near Rockefeller Center. So there's always an allure when you see, um, you know, I just watched a movie which I sent you, Report yeah. to the Commissioner, and uh, which is shot all in Midtown, right where I work in 73. And the building I work in was built right around that time. So it's amazing to see in some of these movies that are older is how much the neighborhood has changed but then at the same time the stark difference of how much neighborhood has not changed yeah, yeah. so it's pretty crazy to see like I love the shots we talked about in, in The Changeling when you have George E. Scott um, you know walking across the street you know uh, Center, uh, on the west side there at Lincoln Center uh, and then you you know you and I are looking beyond him to look at the different you know what's it PJ Clark yeah or that's where PJ Clark's at, is now <laughs> yeah you're looking so the scenes where you see Dennehy like you know cross the street when he's talking you know or, or they're coming out downtown by the courthouse you know and uh, you know it's very exciting because I'm always looking to see what's going on because that's where you know we I don't live in New York City you do but yeah. you know I'm going in the, in the city every day because of um, you know where I work so I guess it's our city, so to speak. So it's like it's so funny to look at the background of the different taxi cabs back then. You know, the they they have like the caprices or these yeah, other yeah. kind of cars. You know, or even in the second movie when then he's driving a checkered cab, a modified, which is like a Batmobile kind of a thing, <laughs> or like the Shadows car. Um, so. Uh, Dennehy doesn't even show up for like 45 minutes of the movie because what ends up happening is um, as we go along with the plot, he's very hesitant at first to take the job. He's like, I don't know, I don't know. 
And then um, he even goes and visits uh, Cliff DeYoung's boss, who's Mason Adams, who we brought up the guy who did, did tons of voiceover work. People our age uh, will know him in a second by his voice because of commercials in the 80s for Newprint and for Cadbury Egg and for, I don't know, a whole, all tons of stuff. And he was featured on here. We did him in uh, The Night They Saved Christmas. Um, he's the boss of the agency or that that branch uh, in New York, that that office. And they're trying to get him to say yes. He says no. And then, like you said, they, 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 go, they go to his ego and they say, okay, we'll hire uh, Tom Savini. And he's like, what? You know, they don't really say Tom Savini. Yeah. And then when they say that, they're like, okay. And then that was almost like a gamble because what happens if he didn't bite? Then they, they would have been gone. I mean, they were really like... Um, like, they almost knew it might happen, you know, uh, because Cliff DeYoung is so like, you know, what, what, fuck you, you're not going to, and then Mason Adams like, calm down, calm down. So um, uh, he, he agrees, and then he's like, you know, this is what I need. And then, you know, the next step is he has to be introduced to Jerry Orbach. So we have this scene where they bring Jerry Orbach secretly to him, and we have like the A-team montage of like, oh, very cool, not, not yeah. in any way kind of like, like, um, like it's schlocky, but it's like him getting ready. So he's doing the first, he's taking pictures of the face, every angle and he's doing this. And then you see this, you know, they do a, a, a mold of his, of his face, you know, and everyone's watching. And at the time you hear for this movie and the second movie, and I don't know if it's urban legend, but supposedly like Hollywood got mad because so much of the craft was exposed, Yeah, which, you know, I don't know if that's true because at this point I figure like, people it was already out there it wasn't like it was like a it's not like he's houdini and he's he's kind of like exposing magic tricks like that old show used to do that you and i used to watch with the guy in the hood that would like just you know tell you everything um but it's fun you see how they do stuff so you know he he takes a mold of of juror the mobster the franco's face and then yeah uh, you know and i i yeah i was gonna say what works great about that scene is that it it lends an air of authenticity to it all um, even if you weren't familiar with the, that, familiar with the process, <clears throat> the fact that he's like li- he's he's really doing it, like he is yeah. really making a mold of Jerry Orbach, it adds like credibility to the character of that uh, Brian Brown's playing. But it also lends some authenticity to the movie, and um, the fact that it is like so detailed, step by step of how it all is, I think is um, kind of like a really smart decision on Mandel's part to kind of show that because you only really needed that one scene because once you show the authenticity of all that first we get the we get like okay he works on Hollywood that's the first scene that we see you know he's a special effects guy he's known we see his uh, his studio or his uh, his workshop where his apartment which might have a, a a poster for zombie in it, right? There's a poster for zombie. There's also a poster for a movie called Fade to Black, which is a great, yeah. uh, very, very interesting, atypical horror movie with a fantastic score by Craig Saffin. Uh, but, uh, and I think, doesn't the next movie, Noonan's in, doesn't uh, Monster Squad, don't they have a poster of zombie in the clubhouse? They do. <laughs> they do, in fact. Okay. <laughs> which is you really know, interesting. Because I didn't know what that was when I was little. You know, I mean, I, I didn't discover that until you in the 90s. Yeah, I know. It's really interesting to see how often that zombie poster pops up at a time where we obviously saw those movies as a kid, but we didn't know that movie. So it didn't mean anything to us then, but it means something yeah. to us now. But my point is only that we establish his job. We establish that people know him for what he does. We established that they hire him because he's an expert. But having that scene of him doing the cast of Jerry Orbach and having it be so authentically detailed, then 
allows us as an audience to buy every aspect of the special effects that come later, even if they're yeah. far-fetched or how far-fetched they, they may go. And they didn't really go that far-fetched in this one. They get a little more outlandish in the second movie. Yeah. But it gives, it gives a clear, like, subliminal indication to the audience that, like, okay, we buy him as this character. We buy yeah. that he does this. And now we can suspend disbelief for the rest of the movie because we see it here. It's really, I thought, a really interesting and, yeah. and well-placed device uh, in terms of like the dramatic storytelling of the movie. Yeah, so you know, Orbach leaves. He starts getting the special effects ready. And then I think you have that where Mason Adams, they're walking across that very iconic location uh, on the east side, I think below Park Avenue maybe or something where that, that footbridge that go- overlooks the... the, the uh, one of the avenues, Lexington maybe, or Park, and he's like, we want you to be the hitman. And he's like, I can't be the He's like, because you, because there's a pattern, you know, with, it's blanks, it's radio controlled, you get the setup that Orbach has the pacemaker, no, boy, you know, I can't, you know, but you also you get the indication, which I could have been played up more about how much of a scoundrel Orbach is, because you have him reading the papers, Brian Brown, and he's like, you know, wow, he's a really a bastard. You know, he's looking at the stuff, you know, you know, so it sets up that he is a real asshole. You know, he's, he's kind of like a Sammy the Bull where he's killed a bunch of people, but he's g- getting away with it because he's testifying. So they kind of convince Brian Brown, they're going to pay him like $30,000 in cash, tax-free. They hand him an envelope and they're like, this, you know, <laughs> take this money. This is what you're, you're doing something good for your country. And they twist his arm to be the guy who's going to walk into the to the Italian restaurant that night and publicly kill him in front of everybody there. But then he does say to him, you know, it's gonna, don't worry. He's like, what happens when I get in there? He's like, it's gonna be all of our people, which is like, well, if it's all their people, there's gotta be regulars in there. There's gotta be some poor, you know, imagine, you know, your parents or your grandparents, you know, they're going out for, you know, granddad's birthday and they're going into the city (laughs) and they go to this expensive restaurant they've had you know, they've had reservations for six months and they're going to go see the cats, you know, and they go to the, they see this thing and then your granddad has a heart attack and he dies. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. I mean, they're not shooting real bullets that we don't know, but yeah. you know, it seems like something could happen or somebody could, what happens if somebody tackled Brian Brown, you know, um, the one so thing I don't buy though, to do it. the one thing I don't buy is they, they set up that like, uh, Clifty Young's character, uh, Lipton, he may he was playing with the gun in the truck yeah, yeah. before yeah. they do the before they do the uh, the the trick or whatever the scene where because they, they there's a scene where they bring Jerry Orbach to the truck the step truck and he starts putting all the stuff on to Jerry Orbach yeah. he has to put the chest on him where the squibs are going to be he's got to put he puts stuff over his face he gives him a wig or oh, hide the electronics you know yeah. that'll blow everything and then while that's happening Cliff the Young starts playing with the revolver that that you know he's going to use and he's like put that down he's like sorry you know. And so the thing that I don't buy is that Brian Brown didn't check the gun. Again. Yeah. Because that's yeah. like, I, I mean, thought may, he would maybe, maybe pre the crow, like they were more loose with the way they handled firearms on set. I'd like to think that's not yeah, true. Yeah, but this is Vic Morrow. This is what happened right after Vic Morrow. So you think safety would have been everyone's concern. And sister, you're right. Since he's working on a movie set, he would have checked a couple times to make sure that he's not, that, that, he that there are, in fact, in blanks of the gun and not. You know that everything's uh, everything's okay because especially yeah. if you saw somebody fucking with it. Uh, so then that sets up that's like foreshadows the fact that like 
he doesn't know if he killed Jerry Orbach or not because he's like, I don't know, the guy was fucking with the gun and for some reason it slipped my mind to check. And I might. They also, he- I think some guns could be modified where they might not be able to shoot real ammunition through them. Uh, I might be wrong, but I think, you know, like Die Hard 2, you have, like, remember they had a different tape of what had blanks and who didn't, but I feel like there are some weapons that are modified that you can't actually shoot a real round through it. They're only made to shoot blanks because... The idea with the blank is like, you know, all you're doing is just, you don't have the projectile, you just have the gunpowder, so you see the flash and nothing's being shot out of it. But from my experience, I shot blanks when I was an extra in The Departed, and it's so, there's so much in it, it's like, it's really bright. Like, I was I was shooting, I think it was like a forty caliber or Glock at a shooting range in the scene, and when it was shooting, it was you know you want to see that muzzle blast for the camera, you want to see that flash. So I was feel I was getting like I was feeling it on my face because the you know the 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 it was so big the the, the fire you know so um, yeah I don't know you're right he I, you think he would have shot it but then it gives you the idea he goes in there shoots him it's like five times in the in the head and or I'm sorry five times in the chest and like once in the head and he falls and then he suddenly realizes when everything goes south that oh maybe he might have actually killed him you know uh and he doesn't know yeah which is interesting what's going on I mean which is like a great plot device it's just it's hard to not wonder like why didn't he check it I mean I guess back then it wasn't you wouldn't have thought about that but now like I said that's the problem being pro post crow now knowing yeah. the the art of illusion in uh, you know in in movie making, like now we think of it, but I guess in '86 nobody would have questioned it. But uh, that's the only thing that, like now as an audience member, I look I look at him like, yeah, that's kind of that's a far stretch that he wouldn't have checked the gun. But um, like I said, maybe in '86 nobody would have thought of that. But it's a great plot yeah. device because not only do you have like he's on the run because. You know, they tried to kill him, so he's trying to figure out. You know, he doesn't even know who to go to because that those so, were yeah, the police. But then so he have, jumps out of the. But then you have he this, jumps out of the restaurant. But my point is only that then you have like this part of like I don't even maybe I did kill him. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and, and so it's you're kind of you're going both ways, or it's you you don't know what to do. Um, because he jumps in the car with Cliff the Young, and then they're getting away, and then all of a sudden Cliff the Young turns a gun and tries to kill him. He fights with the gun, and they crash the car uh, into the, the into like a construction area where the Rambo Two posters are. He gets out and runs. Then he makes a call to Mason Adams from a phone booth, and he's like, "You know, I, um, you know, Cliff the Young just tried to kill me." He's like, "Cliff the Young tried to kill you, Lipton." He's what? like, "Yeah, the guy playing Lipton tried to kill me." What? <laughs> Have you tried a new print? No, I haven't tried a new print. Uh, he's like, I better go up to the to the oil derrick in north the North Pole. So he says, stay where you are. Tell me where you are. So, uh, and I didn't see this coming, you know, which was actually pretty cool. Was it like, you know, he, he hangs the phone up in the phone booth. He gets a knock on the door. Somebody else is waiting to use the door. He gets out and it's pouring out. And he go and he and. Brian Brown goes and hides in the shadows or under a eave to get out of the rain while he's waiting for someone to come pick him up and someone's using the phone and all of a sudden you have like an RMP a, a police car come around the corner with the lights off and they have just two machine guns maybe Uzis and they just destroy the whole the guy in the telephone booth they get out they look and they think it's him yeah. because you know it's a white guy his height his build whatever and they're like yeah we did it and then they speed away and uh, it's 
very horrifying. You're like, oh my god, yeah, you know that was so. Now another level of you know Brian Brown thinks he's going to the boss, and so it, it does have that espionage '70s kind of spy movie kind of a feel where you don't know who to trust and you know who's on your side or whatever. So uh, what's the first thing he does? He runs home, right? He goes to um, his apartment. He's hiding in the shadows. Uh, what's his girlfriend Diane? She gets, she comes home, he grabs her and he's like, get in. And they go in. And this is what I was saying to you when we watched it. I was like, you know, they end up like making love and spending the night in his apartment. Well, and I'm like, her, why I are you spending the- that scene? It's her apartment. I think. Is that her apartment? Yeah. Oh, he's okay. So I guess that's a little more believable. Like I, I thought they just went back to his place and I was, cause they showed him before I got confused. I thought that that studio of his, because I don't know. I, I thought it was the same place because I thought it had a living quarters and then it had another area where the... Um, did. They're both like loft spaces, but hers is laid out yeah. kind of differently than his Because he, cause he throws the keys out, yeah, down to Cliff the Young when he comes up, and I thought that was the same place where they spent the night. And, you know, they had the, Anyway, so yeah. So I was like, why the hell are they, they spending the night there? But if it's her place, I think he, he probably feels like he, uh, he has a level of security. So, and then I don't see the twist coming. She gets killed. Yeah. She opens the, 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 the blinds after like a nice romantic morning and she gets a, a sniper gets her. And then it's like he run, it's like he doesn't really almost check her. He just assumes since the bullet went through her in the chest, she's dead. Yeah. Just, There's yeah. no like, are you okay? Or I'd, oh God, yeah, or I need to try to, to grab the body or, or stop the bleeding. Nothing. You know, just let her, no, nothing. He's just more, you know. And uh, then the guy who's... Um, the sniper comes over the house, and then there's this big fight, which is a great... You know, they talk about the director, Mandel, Mandel said that he looked at like movies like Bullet and French Connection, those action sequences to try to see how to have realistic action sequences in this movie. And this is a good fight scene where, you know, they fight each other in the, in the apartment, and he's throwing everything at the guy because the guy's a professional killer. Yeah. He, he gets the guy off guard, and he ties the, guard's hand, the guy's hands up, but the guy's able to still fight with his legs, then he flips his hands in front of him and then there's this great sequence of you know the stove turns on and yeah. you know well this is this is kind of the scene that i was indicating earlier uh when we were talking about the editor terry rawlings who uh you know great top-notch editor uh allegedly i i don't you know you never know what kind of information you can find on online secondhand information but uh allegedly they cut this scene rawlings cut this scene um, which is a gr- like Deion saying, great scene, um, very exciting, uh, suspenseful, like a fight scene. Like, you know, uh, they're, the burners it's like a professional are- against like us. Yeah, yeah. So you know, the, and the, the professional has his high, his hands literally tied behind his back, but he's still a deadly weapon with his legs and stuff. And this guy's just throwing pots at him. You know, <laughs> Brian Brown. Gonna, like, you know, you know, get- they're the burners on for tea, and so they're they're struggling over by the stove and the burners. And he's on. like sticking his face on his. Yeah, yeah. But supposedly, they cut this scene and they showed it to the people at the studio. Because I don't know, I can't, I didn't get a kind of indication as to like, were they running over budget? Was the studio concerned because Mandel had never directed action? But supposedly, they showed that scene to the studio and the studio was like, oh, like this is, this is good. Like this can work. So they ended up giving the production and Mandel like another million dollars or something for the chase scene to like amp up the intensity of the chase scene to be like, okay, like this can work. So it was like, 
Terry Rawlings' editing of that fight scene ended up uh, getting convincing the studio to to pump a little more money into the project so that they could up some of the action scenes later in the movie. So then that's this is we we've gone through this chronologically just because. Um, this is suddenly where then Brian Dennehy's character shows up with his partner because he's called to investigate this murder and he's mad that he wasn't on the, the Franco case, which is the Jerry Orbach case. Jerry Orbach now was supposedly killed, so there's a lot of bumbling in the office. Cliff DeYoung shares an office there. Um, uh, what's his face? Is his boss um, from Sesame Street, uh, Brian Dennehy. And, uh, you know, Brian Dennehy smells there's something foul going on here, so he starts doing his own investigating. He goes to his the lady in the... Um, in the records and he's helping her. She's breaking into the computers to find out who these people are because all these assassins don't have names or IDs, but they're using their fingerprints. So Brian Dennehy puts it together that it's yeah. that there's something, you know, going on wrong here. What's well, and an, then it's another aspect of the movie that I you know, I said like that the plot of Brian Brown doing it and then being on the lamb, like it's a little convoluted as to how that all comes about. And I'm and not even in a bad way. It's something that I actually appreciate about the movie. It's the same thing going on here with Brian Dennehy's character, which is like he's investigating a different... He's investigating the murder of his girl, uh, Brian Brown's girlfriend. Yeah, he's, he's, call, he's get called on a homicide, and he comes in, and it, yeah, it's the apartment in shambles with the dead guy, the dead assassin with his arms tied up, the woman who's yeah. now... He moved to the bed. Brian Brown moved to the bed, so he's trying to figure out what's going on yeah. here. And so Brian Dennehy's character, want Leo, wants to be investigating the Jerry Orbach uh, mob guy murder. But he's yeah. like, he's stuck investigating this other thing that he does, you know, that he, do, he sees as, you know, less important or less glorif- glorifying or whatever. And it was through his investigating that murder that he started, he comes to realize that they're the same case. Um, yeah. Which is a little convoluted, but um, not even. I guess convoluted is not the right word. Complex. I mean, it's this movie could be way more straightforward the way they execute this, but I appreciate the fact that it takes some detours to get to the finish line. You know what I mean? Well, it's a little. It's a little. They do that on purpose to try to murky it up. It's Absolutely. almost like one of these. And I love it about yeah. this movie because th- there are other movies, especially of this era, that probably would have taken this in a much more straightforward fashion and though it would have been exciting the suspense would have worked there's something slightly more engaging about the fact that you're following these it's weaving around a little bit to get where you need to go and yeah uh, as a viewer i just find it more interesting yeah and i completely agree um uh, that it could have been done differently in somebody else's hands and this is just as interesting and it's interesting how that you know uh, i would say brian brown was a new face to audiences uh, Jerry Orbach, maybe the seasoned pers- um, moviegoer would recognize him or if he was he had a big Broadway career at that point. So if you were into the theater, you'd know him. But I say maybe uh, Dennehy was the biggest person in this movie and he doesn't show up until 45 minutes in. Yeah. And they do it the old, you know, they do it the old cop way where he's under the, you know, gets the phone call and you see his hand come out to the hand, <laughs> to the, you know, that's, that's the very, you know, Frank Bullet kind of way. Yeah, yeah, who is it? Leo, okay, homicide, hangs up, you know, and then Gordon from Sesame Street's keeping him on this case and then he's got a sweet ass mustache, by the way, we should mention. Then he's walking around with this awesome mustache. So then as we wrap up, uh, he calls his girlfriend up, Brian, and his assistant Brian Brown. They get his uh, a car out of hock because they had they had 
uh, towed his car, and there's this big sequence because Brian Dennehy's cop partners is, is sitting on the uh, impound yard where, the, where the, the special effects truck is. They get it out. This is that big sequence you're talking about down in the meatpacking district. They have this big car chase where they're, you know, the, the cop is going after the FX truck to try to figure out what's going on. And well, she's great in it, the assistant. They get away, and then he, he, he does a great way to get her out because he doesn't want to get her more involved, so he leaves her there and she gets pissed. Maybe that's why she doesn't come back for the second movie, <laughs> you know. And then he figures out, I forget how, but he figures out where they all are. So he shows up to the house at night. Uh, you know, and then there's a nice sequence in Central Park where he first meets her, and then Tom Noonan's following her. That's really nice with yeah. the with the sailboat you can rent. Yeah, you know? the, so the, the, chase, the, movie, they, the chase scene is cool, though, because it's like she's strapped into the back of the truck, and she's dumping out like... Yeah, she's got the door open in the back, and she's strapped in so she won't fall out. Yeah, but it's a big she's bulky like truck she's dumping like the things of like silicone or blood or whatever onto the streets. Yeah. to like make it. Stri- and then I did remember as we were watching the chase this time, I remembered like, oh yeah, they're going to throw that old lady dummy, dummy out. Yeah, out, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is what causes is the great, cops to stop. It's a great, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a great little. Um, yeah, so they throw it out. He turns the corner and he stops just in time. He gets out. He's like, "Oh my god!" And then someone rear ends him and it goes over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you know. Run, he's like, "Ah!" So then they end up. Brian Brown ditches her, takes the car up. They end up in in Rye, which is right near where Blake and I went to college. Yeah, uh, where this mansion is. And then there's the ending sequence where he's basically like a commando yeah, going in and he takes out everybody. Yeah, it's it's it, um, and he's pretty good. It's like the Punisher, um, you know, Dolph Lundgren. You know, he's like he he kills all the guy, and it, I'm surprised <laughs> that he takes it to that level because some of those governor of those, it, it might not be a stretch to think that not all these guys are in on it. They're just part of the witness protection program, so they're just regular agents. One he electrocutes, one he blows something up in the face. Yeah, yeah. Well, this you know, is, one of them, another one gets shot. This whole ending has eight. not even just this scene, but even like the little epilogue. Of like what happens with Brian Brown and Brian Denny. It's so eight like you couldn't do this movie now in terms of that way. Like yeah. it's just like he's he, creeping around the house. <laughs> you know, unlike unlike MacGyver, uh Raleigh Tyler has like no regard for other people's lives. <laughs> you know, yeah, no qualms at all. Understandable in that these are people who are trying to kill him and he's trying and to And his save girl himself. they killed his girlfriend. It's justified. But also like You know, then there's the great sequence where he um where they, they maybe that's how they figure out where he figures out where they are. They grab the one guy, puts him. They grab Cliff the Young. They put him in a trunk, and it's very reminiscent of uh, uh, Point Blank, uh, Point Blank with Lee Marvin, where Lee Marvin's trying to get information for some guy, so he totals the car under these pillars. Tell me. And in this movie, Brian Brown throws Cliff the Young in the trunk, and then just starts trashing, you know, hitting rear-ending the car into pillars under the highway until Cliff the Young tells him where they are. So you're right. By the time he gets up to Westchester, he's got no regard. And it's funny because this is where I think Jerry Orbach shines. I think the best – he's so great. I love Jerry Orbach regardless, you know, Law and & Order and stuff like that as uh, uh, Briscoe. But in this scene, he's fucking hilarious. He's like, he's in the fucking house. <laughs> he's playing with the fuse. But he's so good. You know, because yeah. then that's how Brian, uh, Brian Dennehy, whatever, however he does it, he storms in the office. He gets the number. He calls. He the the mansion. He gets um, Mason Adams on the phone, and he ends up um, 
he ends up getting in the house and he's able to get to the fuse box. Like he knows where everything is. Yeah. So it's like not only is he able to, to jump the gate, uh, you know, get through everything, he like knows the layout of the house. So suddenly he's playing with the lights. He's hooking up stuff, very MacGyvering, but they're like stuff that'll kill people. I mean, he just comes in with a duffel bag. But then, like, when he, when he gets them upstairs and Tom Noonan and the other guy are, like, you know, prancing around trying to find him, he pulls out, like, a projector slide. <laughs> and he's, you know, it's like, where was he carrying that? And he, you hear him, like, <laughs> he's, like, taking it. And, like, nobody hears him. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's, like, in a real world, like, they I would come back right as he, he's pulling it all out. I don't know? remember <laughs> climbing out of the house with that thing because he does pull, like, this, this giant, like, stand, projector stand. And then... <laughs> Yeah, it's like he pulls this thing out and he mirrors, so it's a nice... So he, he gets everything, and then, you know, uh, the helicopter's coming to take the bad guys away. Jerry Orbach, he he he, he hooks the, the thing up to, so it get electrocution, so he knows Jerry Orbach touches it. It signals his pacemaker, freaking great. He's like, ah, you know, and then Mason Adam gets away, and he uses crazy glue on Mason. And another way, it kills Mason Adams in a, in a, a, a you know, a, the cop shooting. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's great, too, because you have Mason Adams... Jerry Robot gra- grabs this Uzi. He's like, he's going to, you know, kill, kill. He's like, I'm not fucking around anymore. And Mason Adams is sitting there. And Mason, we, the whole movie we've noticed, subtle 80s uh, camera shots that he's got a miracle here. And then you have the sequence where uh, suddenly has a, a, a realization that his miracle here is picking up everything on the, uh, you know, because he hears him coming down the stairs. Yeah. But he doesn't tell Jerry Orbach. And you hear him, he's like, he's like, starts twitching around with the ear. He's like, my miracle ear is hearing. You know? So, uh, you know, Jerry Orbach's killed. And then it ends up, uh, it ends up um, coalescing where, you know, then Mason Adams is killed. They get the key. And then the ending is, uh, Denny, he's thrown off the force because he's, you know, he's, the, or they, they take his badge, various, you know, this, the, mean scene and he goes up steals gordon's badge and goes up to westchester on his own calls the state police and foils everything but you don't really know at the end of it it's like you know denny he i don't know if they ever do they ever meet like denny he and brian brown they meet at what the very end maybe i forget how they end up meeting but then the, the denouement is that they go to gen uh they go to switzerland geneva yeah. And they go get the money that the whole point, which was the MacGuffin of the movie, is that Jerry Orbach, the reason why he's turning state's evidence is because he's siphoned all this money from the mob. To, and then the mob found out about it. So he was forced to then run to the cops to protect his own life. So they know that this money is in the safety deposit box. So at the end of the movie, they end up getting like, what is it, like $15 million that Denny He and Brian Brown split. So yeah, they had yeah. this very amicable. So it does take a left turn where it's like they become, fr- because um, Denny He. With like, no, I'm not. I'm gonna either let you go or turn you in. But instead, he's like, I'll meet you in, you know, two weeks. I'll meet you in Gen- Geneva. And then the next scene is, uh, he le- he goes in, and Mason Adams had said to him, you, know, you can't get in there without either me or Jerry Orbach because they know us. So he uses the mask and he goes in as Jerry Orbach, yeah. and that's how he gets the money out. And then he gets to the car, he rips the mask off in the um, Mission, Mission Impossible, Impossible kind of a way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it's suddenly Brian Brown under Jerry Orbach. And then, um, and then it's like you know, it's they have this the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, and then they drive away, and they have this big helicopter shot that really doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Of them just like, drive with this great they're, go, they're, they're, they're going to the Overlook Hotel after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, then they just kind of die. It's like they didn't really know what. So they just, the, 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 the helicopter has to go back and refuel. And they're like, okay, we can just, you know. 
now just cut the black, you know. And then they also just like cut to like shots from earlier in the movie of each of the characters. But it's not even like case though, right? But it's not even like predator style, you know what I mean? Where it's like Carl Weathers. It's just like they come up doing something funny. And they're like laughing, like they bumble, they're like, ah, or something, and they laugh or look at the camera, and then, yeah. So, I, I know we have to segue, but I wanted to get all that in because it's kind of important for then the second movie that then, as we transition to the second, I think that's, oh, then, so this movie comes out, and it does, it does very good. $10 million budget, makes $20 million. Um, some of the producers think that it could have did better if it didn't have the FX title on it, because they were thinking like a movie like MASH or something that people would, which I don't... Do you see that this movie being hurt in the box office because of its title? I don't know. I mean, I I never would have thought of that. I mean, it seemed like as Neither good a title I. as any. So that's why we have that subtitle, right? The Deadly Art of Illusion? Yeah. So who knows if it's not released overseas as that. But it does very well, and it does so well they want to give it a sequel. And well, like a the, lot of the... It's, it's critically critics claimed. like it, too. You know, the critics like it. Yeah. It gets favorable reviews for anything from, like, it's a fun ride to, like, you know, yeah. it's... You know, it's like a special effects hold up. And Brian uh, Dennehy brings magic to the role. He's large and he enlarges it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it is interesting in that, like, as you point out that, like, these are two different stories happening at the same time. And I don't even know if Brian Dennehy and I don't even remember if Brian Dennehy and Brian Brown meet until Geneva. That's what I mean. Yeah. I don't, that's, that's what I, that's what I, I thought like he may realize it all. Yeah. And this guy's a clever son of a bitch. He goes over his apartment. He sees the monster scares him that jumps out, which I remember when I was little, the monster jumping out. Yeah. And uh, his partner certainly knows all the Brian Brown movies, but he kind of starts getting an admiration for the guy. And, he, and then he's the first one that feels like something's wrong. Yeah. So when he gets his badge taken and everything by the asshole uh, who's under Gordon, and Gordon's like, I got to take your badge. And then, Brian, you know, it's like a real serious, sad scene. He's like, give me your badge and gun. And then he's like, uh, puts his hands, you know, and then Gordon, the chief's like, or the captain's like, I'm sorry. I, I know this is tough. I didn't want to do this. You're my friend. And then Brian, then he leaves and they look at Gordon. They're like, he just pickpocketed you and he don't have yeah. his gun. He don't have his badge anymore. Yeah, yeah. So that's funny. One thing I will you know, say so, about um, the first one, as much as I enjoy the first one and as much as I loved watching it, again now uh for this i wish even then i remember wishing that there was like more special effects macgyvering going on than that's actually in the movie um but all that aside i don't know if it i don't know what prompted them to make fx2 because it's like six years later which is pretty long time but it was definitely Um, one thing before we leave, there is a sequence. We just did Mark for Death in February. And there's the scene in Mark for Death where they're going after the uh, evil gang in their car. And they're they're in an SUV and the, the gang's in a car and they start driving on the sidewalk. And in that sequence where he's trying to get away from the cops and he's in the step truck and they're in the meatpacking district, there's, they take a corner and people jump for their lives. And then Brian Brown just like, get out of the way, get out of the way. And you just think that's going to be okay. And there's people literally leap again. You, you know, your, your mom and your dad go to like the Gansevoort Hotel for a lunch, you know, and then and he's run down because some guy took a step truck, you know, because he's trying to get away, but we're with him. It's like, you know, yeah, it's always yeah. these movies where you're like, Jesus, what happens if that's your... So there's people jumping for their lives, which I thought was hilarious, right out of Mark for Death. So, but yes, you're right. There is a... a um, a five or six year difference, and I wonder if it's just. I mean, you ha- you have Dodi Fayette, he comes back, yeah, and you know, so he's he's integral in this, and Brian Brown, uh, or no, I think it's, I think, uh, 
Dennehy goes on to work with Mendel a couple of times in some in some other capacities. They do like three or four movies together, but yeah. he doesn't come back for the sequel. Uh, but uh, to direct, yeah, to direct. But Brian Brown ends up being the like executive producer of the sequel. So I mean, he might have been kind of instrumental in getting it off the ground. I don't know what prompted it. Like I said, usually if a movie does really well and they do a sequel, then they'll kind of green light it right in production and then by like 88 it would have been out you know what i mean or 89 but it doesn't come out to 1991 um but i wonder if it's a career choice for um brian brown because he does cocktail what 87 88 yeah. that's huge maybe he goes back to australia does some stuff there and then he's like looking for something to do and maybe it's his impetus with with dennehy you know because dennehy at that time was doing some other stuff we brought up before dennehy has an amazing uh, portrayal of uh, John Wayne Gacy in a made-for-TV movie that might have been Canadian done. Remember Gladiators? Uh, so Brian, Gladiators, yeah, which is <laughs> a Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah, they're, they're doing a lot of good movies at this time. So they're both still doing a, a lot. You know, I saw, ended up seeing uh, Dennehy on Broadway in Inherit the Wind with Christopher Plummer in 2007. Uh, and um, quickly there's a story where my grandfather took a bus to see uh, Denny, everybody from the area, elderly, got on a bus, went to go see a play. Denny, he was in, and it was a matinee, like on a Sunday. And word got back to Denny after the play that people from Derby or from the town, next town over that area had come to see the play. So when the play was over, an usher came out and said, everybody who's from the Connecticut area, please hang out. And everyone else left in, I don't know, 20 or so people. And so then Brian Denny came out with a stool, sat down, and he spent an hour with everybody just answering questions. Everybody and talking else to get the hell out. <laughs> exactly. Everybody else. Uh, you know, you and me, we'd be like, yeah, we're from wherever. You know, that, we, that wouldn't be beneath us. Where are you guys from? Uh, over there. So, um, yeah, for all... Tense purposes, Denny, he was a really nice guy. And when I met him, he, he lived, he said, in Woodstock, Connecticut, which is way up by Massachusetts, way, you know. So, um, lovely, lovely guy. But it's funny because he, he becomes this larger-than-life kind of a guy. And then by the time you hit FX2, he's mustacheless. So, I don't know if I can trust him. Yeah. But he's like a ladies' man. Everybody's saying to him, like, oh, like, we have not only do... Um, Brian Brown and Denny, he reprised their role, but you have the girl who was in the uh, the records room. Yeah. And, you know, he sent her to Jamaica in the first movie. And in this movie, well, he she, jokes he's, about he's got sending, two tickets. He, he jokes about sending her to Jamaica, and he never does, I yeah. don't think. Well, I thought she, he was saying she, he would with his with, with her new date because she's dating around. But in this movie, in FX2, he shows her two tickets, and, like, she's been waiting the whole time. Because when... When in the first movie, when he when he gets the info, she gives him like whatever the puzzle piece is, and he's like, "Oh, hearty, you're beautiful." He like gives her a real heavy kiss on the lips and runs, which is like you can't do that nowadays. So <laughs> sorry, Mister Denny, that's not <laughs> that's not you know a, not not nowadays. So then in the second movie, you realize, oh, there was some sort of he was a ladies' man of De- Dennehy. So you know that was it yeah. was completely warranted because he's gonna he's gonna go end up with her. So come uh, to the second movie, like you're saying. Yeah, well, second movie. I don't know why it takes so long to get to, but it's like they take my comment about the first one, which is like there's not enough FX <laughs> MacGyvering happening, <laughs> and they up at another level. Uh, before we dive in, another uh, credit uh, list that's worth going into, directed by Richard Franklin, who's an Australian director, so maybe that was part of an impetus of Brian Brown uh, working with an Australian director. Uh, Richard Franklin sadly died in 2007. But uh, even though he was an Australian director, he came to America to go to film school where he went to uh, USC and was a student, uh, uh, a fellow student alongside George Lucas, Robert Zemeckis, and John Carpenter. 
Uh, Patrick uh, Richard Franklin made the movie Patrick, which is a horror movie from the seventies that uh, many of us remember. Uh, Psycho Two he directed. He fabulous. Direct, he directed uh, a movie called Road Games, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. He directed Cloak and Dagger, which Dion brought up earlier. Which, yep, yep. <laughs> and he directed uh, that movie uh, Link, which is about like a killer yes. orangutan. Uh, interesting, a bit of trivia, uh, uh, allegedly, uh, that uh, while at USC, he really wanted to screen um, Rope, the Hitchcock movie. He was a huge Hitchcock fan. Uh, ever since he saw Psycho as a kid, so it's kind of fortuitous that he would go on to direct Psycho 2. Both, coincidentally, Psycho 2 and Cloak and Dagger were written by Tom Holland, who uh, went on to write and direct uh, uh, Fright Night and, dire- yeah. and direct a Child's Play. And we did, I did a Fright, Fright Night on this uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers with uh, Mighty Mike Vanderbilt. Uh, but so he was a huge Hitchcock fan and he wanted to screen psycho at uh i mean he wanted to screen rope at usc and he wanted to have hitchcock come and 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 do like a q a and uh which resulted in hitchcock giving him a call and him talking to hitchcock on the phone and then they later and then that led to them actually being friends uh and you hear carpenter talk about how like well he was there at USC, like Howard Hawks came and talked to the students and Hitchcock came and talked to the students. So that might be the time Hitchcock came and talked to the students uh, that Carpenter refers to. And uh, it was because of him. It might have been it was because it might of been Richard beca- Franklin. It might have been because Richard Franklin. And uh, like mov- how we got Dick Smith to come <laughs> to our place, and the which mov- we have a podcast about. And the movie Road Games, which stars Jamie Lee Curtis, allegedly uh, Franklin met Jamie Lee Curtis while visiting Carpenter on the set of The Fog. Oh, wow, okay. Um, and that's how he met Jamie Lee Curtis, and then they worked together. Uh, the writer of the movie is Bill Condon, who wrote uh, several great scripts and became a director. He wrote uh, a movie called Strange Invaders in 83. He later wrote the movie Chicago in 2002 and The Greatest Showman. Uh, which is just a couple years old, but he, he Chicago is dir- off the musical. Yeah, he directed the like yeah. the Catherine Zeta Jones, uh, Richard Gere, yeah, live action movie. But he also directed um, Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh, <whistles> but then also directed uh, Gods and Monsters, the Ian McKellen movie from yeah. uh, a while back that was ba- Brendan a, Fraser, a big uh, critical success. He directed Kinsey, the uh, Liam Neeson Love Kinsey. movie. He yeah. directed the musical Dream Girls, the the movie. Okay. He directed Eddie Murphy. He directed uh, Twilight Saga: Breaking Dawn parts one and two. Mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. he directed um, another Ian McKellen movie, Mr. Holmes, which is kind of interesting. It's I don't, I don't know if anybody's seen it, but it was it was it was kind of interesting. It was taking, Sherlock Holmes? Kind yeah, of a, it was kind of yeah. taking the idea of like Holmes is a real person, and uh, all those movies and stuff are based on Watson's. Uh, stories, but they're like a fictionalized retelling of what actually the stories were like. Um, and uh, he directed that kind of quote-unquote live-action Beauty and the Beast from a couple of years ago. So there's two Beauty and the oh, Beast okay. connections. 
<laughs> with this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, because yeah, and that was a big hit. That that's the one I think that greenlit all these other live action. Yeah, li- li- uh, you know, uh, Lion King and Aladdin. Bill Conti for some reason does not come back for the sequel to do the music, but they get the great Lalo Schifrin to do yes. the music. Um, who we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Who you know did Bullet. Uh, Enter the Dragon, uh, Amityville Horror, tons of really fantastic scores. Dirty Harry, um, a couple of Dirty Harrys, yeah. uh, Rush Hours even recently. <laughs> um, uh, and if the uh, director of photography of the first one was a big deal, listen, wait till you listen to Victor J. Mission Impossible, too, because he we did, just brought up the Mission Impossible. He, he did, did the, the theme, theme for he Mission did, Impossible. He did yeah. a lot of themes. Yeah, he did a couple movies, but anyway. Uh, He's got a list that's longer than your arm. Listen to this list of uh, director photography credits for Victor J. Kemper, who was the guy that shot this movie. He did a Dion and Blake classic, Seamus, from 1973 with Burt Reynolds. Burt the Reynolds, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a movie we should do on this show. <laughs> Fabulous movie. It's kind movie. of like, you know, that's the stuntman version of FX, yeah. kind of. Yeah, it's Burt Reynolds doing all his own stunts in New York. And uh, one of the early, John Glover is one of his early roles. Uh, he did The Gambler. He did Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. He shot Slap. That was a big movie. He shot Slap Shot. Uh, wow. He shot uh, Audrey Rose, the horror movie from 77. He shot Oh God with, with George Burns. <laughs> uh, and uh, Denver. He shot uh, Eyes of Laura Mars in 78. The movie Magic. That's a big one of ours. With Anthony Hopkins in 78 as well. And we Justi- love that movie. And Justice for All with Al Pacino. Uh, the Great. Jerk. <laughs> the Final Countdown. Jesus. Xanadu, Mr. Jesus. Mom. Jesus. <laughs> wow. National, this is, he, National Lampoon's Vacation and National Lampoon's European Vacation. We may have to induct him right now into the Sleepover Saturday Night Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame right now. Uh, <laughs> Open up the fridge. <laughs> uh, Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Come on. So he's been on the show before. Slapshot. He'd been on the, we did Slapshot, but then Pee Wee's Big Adventure. We also did Clue. Which he yeah. shot. Uh, That's three. I think, feel like you've already named one he was on. Here's one. Here's, right. here's a movie that Dan will appreciate. He shot uh, See No Evil, Hear No Evil <laughs> with Richard I love, Pryor. That's one of my, yeah, and, and Gene Wilder. That's Gene what I'm, Kevin Spacey, of all people, too. He's the bad guy in that movie. He shot Beethoven. He shot Tommy Boy. Wow. Uh, and many, many hundreds of other That's movies. That's not. It's, it's Black Sheep is the one with Dennehy, right? Uh, not Tommy Boy. Which one is the one that his father dies? His father dies and he has to get the business, but that's Dennehy. You know, that's that's what he does after this. You know, and that's a great role because that endeared him to younger audiences. Yeah, but uh, that crazy, impressive uh, director of photography credits, Um, and uh, and of course we have another cast of uh, familiar faces, some of which have appeared on the show in terms of obviously Brian Brown and Brian Dennehy return. Rachel Takatan yeah. returns. So she doesn't return to the movie. She wasn't in the first movie, but she's been featured on two episodes of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. She was Yeah, she she plays his girlfriend in this new movie. Yeah. It's, it's, but it's she the romantic interest. Was previously featured on episodes of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers for Total Recall and yep. for uh, Our most controversial episode. <laughs> falling down. To, falling down, yeah. Previously on Ready to Die. Yeah, that's both of ours. Uh, so she's been on twice. Um, great, great work in Total Recall. Um, and I get her confused sometimes because I met the the lady who's in uh, Running Man. 
uh, the female lead in that, and she's not in a lot of movies, but uh, I think of her when I think of Total Recall. But yeah, she's great in Total Recall. Yeah. Um, I hadn't remembered that she was in this until then, uh, until you know she came up. And I'm like, oh yeah, look who it is. Um, we've got a lot of interesting people that were in this that that we that have been in a couple of our um, our catalog. Well, like Kevin J. O'Connor uh, plays a small part as kind of a snitch in this movie. Uh, but uh, and he's young in this. Yeah, he's pretty young. Uh, but he was in. We did. Uh, we did. <laughs> I still yeah. love that we did this movie. But we did an episode of Color of Night, and he's in that movie. Yes, um, he is. He's one of the people with, there with, with Bruce uh, Willis and and Lance Henriksen. And uh, well, Blake wanted to tape it, tap into that erotica, the yeah, video store we erotica. Turn to that the, at some point. The erotic thriller. Yeah. Yeah, do like silk stockings or some sort Basic of uh, instinct we should do. But uh, he's also or, in a movie that I have a great affection for, which is uh, Lord of Illusions, the uh, Clyde Barker yeah. movie starring Scott Bakula and uh, Famke Johnson. So you're going to say Land of the Dead? He's in that as well. Uh, but he's in a bunch of movies. He's always play. He's in. He's in um, Speed Two. Maybe he's in that. Is he in that Treat Williams movie where they're on the? They're getting away from the monsters and they're on the the. Uh, he you might know, those, be. Yeah. You know, talking deep about rising. The, deep rising. I think he's in that. Uh, he's in a bunch of movies. Uh, you know, still making movies and stuff like that. Um, we got a lot of a lot of you know Phil uh, Bos- Bosco, who's been in a lot of stuff. Uh, Joanna Gleason's She's been in a lot of stuff. A lot of shit from when we grew up. Yeah. So there's a lot of familiar faces in here. There is somebody I do want to talk about, but we, we I, I'll get to him when we when we uh, when we get to him. But um, who else is... I feel like... So there's just so many people that you look... Oh, then we didn't mention, which I didn't pick up on in the first movie. Evidently, that's uh, Angela Bassett's first appearance in a movie. She's one of the reporters after DeFranco dies. I didn't see And they're at the hospital, and everyone's trying to like... You know, he was shot dead when... That's when... um, He he assassinates uh, Orbach. But yeah, I didn't see her either. And I read it, and then we watched the movie, and then when I read it again, I said, Blake, I didn't see her. And you're like, I didn't see her either. I was like, well, (laughs) Jesus. So... She, I was trying to figure out. I was like, "Oh, she must have been in that sequence." Then she's one of the reporters. Yeah. Uh, but it just happened so quickly. So this movie. So he retires from the business, and this movie was shot more in Toronto. But again, they do use some great. Uh, they do shoot elements in New York. So there is some sequences Exteriors. that are really cool that are in New York. Yeah, and that really grounds it in New York. So you don't really notice, per se, that they are doubling for Toronto when they are doubling for Toronto. Yeah. Um, the soundtrack by Lalo, it's very Dated. of its time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, so it's, it's, it's a lot going on. I the mean, you have like capsule. the, I don't, know, I, I don't know what you call the chimes. Yeah. You know, like a lot, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. A lot and, of rock uh, guitar, Like the Dreamcatcher. Yeah. Rock synth. More synth sound. Oddly enough, more dated than um, Conti's score. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's like what Lalo was doing, because Lalo's coming from that heavy jazz background, and you know when he gets into that era... Which Conti was too, the- but Conti, Conti's scoring for the most part, um, even though he took detours to do things like uh, in synths with like... Uh, Nomads and stuff like that. Conti was best known for pretty big orchestral scores, even though the Rocky movies didn't have huge orchestras uh, and have a lot of like have a contemporary rhythm section, but balanced out with like a lot of horns and strings and and so even though there's probably some synths going on in Conti's FX score, 
it's probably more augmented with some orchestra, which causes things to not uh, be time-stamped so specifically to the time yeah. of the movie. Even though Conti's movie score does sound very 80s, it just sounds more... Uh, it's more forgiving, more I guess? More timeless in a, in a, yeah. in a way than... than um, Schifrin score, which is like total like early '90s sound, but that yeah. also comes with um, technology that they're using. Yeah. You know, it seems like I mean, it's state of the art of the day. But then, everything that you think is state of the art today is going to be old fashioned later. And so, it has a certain yeah. sound, not just from the synths he's using, but just the recording style. And when I say dated, I'm not. A, I don't even mean that in like a bad way. It's just yeah. like Dion saying it's very much of the time. It's like a time capsule, time stamps. Uh, FX too yeah. in the early '90s, which I'm totally fine with because it's a very nostalgic yeah. time for us. Yeah, uh, I find a lot of his earlier stuff not as dated, like say the the stuff he was doing in the '70s. He does the first two Dirty Harry movies. He doesn't do the third movie, The Enforcer. He comes back and does Sudden Impact. I don't know if he does the last Dirty Harry movie, The Deadpool, but I bring it up because the third movie. Sudden Impact, which is like 82 or 83, his soundtrack is very 80s. So he's taking a lot of this. Um, there's different scores for one and two. Magnum Force has its own big theme, Dirty Hair. But there is a suite that they bring up throughout the movie of like Dirty Harry's theme or this, you know. So there's a play on that in each movie. So by when time you get to the 80s and Sudden Impact, it's very like this score. It's very much in the 80s. And I couldn't offhand point to other stuff he was doing at this time Lalo but I wonder if there is in the 80s he was you know he's been around since the late 50s or 60s you know Blake and I we've talked about we saw him live at the Blue Note and we had a conversation with him and he signed my you know bullet CD soundtrack and I was gonna have a longer talk with him but some guy butted in and talked to him the whole time about um, something else and you Blake and I used to joke because if anyone's ever gone to the Blue Note in Manhattan, it's like you walk in and there's the restaurant bar where the stage is, but then to the left there's stairs and you can go upstairs and I think that might be where the bathrooms are, but there's some other areas and that might also be where the uh, dressing rooms are, the green rooms. So where Blake and I were, we're against the stage, right up against the stage, literally. And we, our eyes were facing the entrance of the Blue Note, and you could see the stairs. And you and I would see Lalo would poke his head around. Remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was looking, and me and you were like, oh, Lalo just wants someone to talk to. No one's talking to Lalo. And he was just like, look. He'd be like, <laughs> looking around. And that was when you and I were like, I'm going to go talk to him. And that you, you, I went up there. You either came with me or you didn't. And I got him to sign my CD at that point. Very nice. But then some other guys started talking in front of him. And I spent 15 minutes in the, you know, trying to talk to him, but Dan then this other guy's just like, you got always script? gets cocked block when he sees celebrities out, out and about in public. To talk to yeah, them. it happened with Shatner too, nice. right? Yeah, it happened with. I no, paid, was Peter? My wife was it Shatner or Peter Weller that happened to you? Right? No, Weller. They all wanted money at the Star Trek uh, convention some years ago in New York at the Javits Center, and I wouldn't. It was ridiculous. It was like a hundred bucks, whatever. So and then you couldn't take pictures or whatever. So I was like, you know, no one was standing next to Weller. He was just by himself with an assistant. So I said, I'm going to go up to him and we talked about this in whatever movie we did Weller. But I'm going to go talk to him about his Ithaca being a professor and those History Channel documentaries. And as Blake knows, I always try to go in with something that's really on the the B side, and that's how I get the people to start talking. You know, again, uh, what's his name? Uh, From Jaws and Mr. Holland's Opus. Um, oh, Richard, 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 I met him at work, and everybody was talking to him about uh, Mr. Holland's opus, uh, Jaws, or Close Encounters. 
I went up to him and I said, I just want to tell you how much I loved you and Tom's uh, uh, Stoppard's um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And he's like, and he says to me, he goes, you know, what's your name? I go, Dion. He goes, Dion, it's only once every 10 years I get a compliment like that. And I said, well, thank you, Richard. <laughs> and then we had this long talk, you know, like, and then we started talking about the movie and that and then, hit, you know, so like, so I try to go up to him with something like minuscule, but then when I'm in the public, this is getting back. Weller was fine. Great. I talked to Weller. He loved it. Shook my hand. He's like, thank you so much. You know, reality shows killed that show. I'm so pissed. It sucks. It was a great show. And then when I go, we, we're like, listen, if we're going to pay money, we'll pay money for Shatner. Let's get an autograph Shatner. We pay a hundred bucks. We walk up to him. We start talking to him about like the swarm or the devil's reign. And then some other guy who I think had some was on the spectrum. Uh, with something he had like an enterprise model that had everybody signed and he comes up and he starts having another conversation about a con- look who I got I got you know I got uh, whoever to sign it here and then Shatner starts talking to him and we're like what? Uh, and then he eats all of our time up because there's somebody behind us and it's like motherfucker we paid a hundred bucks and I've met Shatner two other times at work aside from that and yeah I'm not gonna bother him too much he signed my devil's reign or I shook his hand and told him I liked him in that Westinghouse Steve McQueen episode that he did on TV. <laughs> but it's like when you're paying the money, and you know you want to have that thirty seconds yeah, in him, and then you somebody get, else. So you get like a minute. It's you know. Yeah, come on. You want you know? Minute. It's not like yeah, I, I'm paying. It's not like you, you, the nicest of your heart. You're signing my thing for free, and I understand you're busy. You got to go. But I'm paying. I paid a hundred bucks to, for a headshot. You know, it's like please give me f- two seconds. My wife wants to compliment you and tell you how much she loves you, and so. That happens a bit, and that happened with Lalo when we yeah. were at the, the Blue Note. So, but, um, getting back on track. Uh, uh, you know, he's... But then they say the additional music by Michael Bodiger, uh, which I don't know what that means he filled in. Maybe he just did the wraparounds. A lot of people and then, do. A lot of scores have additional music by. It's I, I have yet to... There's, a, there's someone that I'm trying to get to talk to for Score to Death. Who uh, has scored some things, but he has a lot of like additional music credits, and I, I would love to t- when I, if I ever get to talk to him, I, I'm going to talk to him like, what does that mean? You know, like he has extra music, additional music credits, like on all the, Sp- the Raimi Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man movies. Oh, really? Um, so I'm, just, you know, I want to talk to him like, what does that mean? Do you get a call that's like, you know, we need, or does like Danny Elfman call and say, look, you know, I'm behind. Can you write? Uh, can you take these scenes, or I need 30 seconds here, or 30 seconds. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Like Shirley Jackson used to do a little bit for him. Uh, Walker. For Elfman in particular. Shirley, Wa- Shirley Walker. J.J. Walker. <laughs> Dado my! <laughs> um, so, and then also, there's something where uh, there was a personal tragedy in Richard Franklin's life, and they say that a guy named Vic Armstrong came in and directed the last few weeks of the movie. I guess I've something went two, on. I've heard two different stories about this. This is another one of those things. Well, Vic Armstrong was a uh, Hollywood stuntman and stunt coordinator. Like he was um, uh, Harrison Ford's stuntman on a few movies, you know, like on like Return of the Jedi you know, and stuff like that. Um, and so- while you're at Harrison Ford, they say that they Harrison Ford passed on doing this originally in, in the first movie. That, that and maybe Richard Gere, they asked rumor you know what ifs yeah, or what yeah. ifs that yeah, harrison ford in 86 and he was like no thank you i'm gonna do presumed innocent <laughs> you know what ends up happening a lot for it seems to me what happens a lot with some stunt guys is the that some of them go into directing like um how Needham, like how Needham, but uh a lot of them go into doing second unit directing because a lot of the second unit 
while first unit is doing all the stuff with the characters, a lot of times second unit ends up going and doing a lot of the action scenes where you can't see the stars anyway, whether it's a chase scene or uh, and stuff like that. So uh, it seems to me that a lot of the stunt guys end up going into second unit because a lot of the stuff that second unit ends up directing are, are like action-y scenes. And Vic Armstrong... Did we bring Armstrong up for Temple of Doom? I don't know if we did or not, but Armstrong... Uh, Harrison was, hurt his back, remember? And, and he had this stunt double there for a number of weeks doing other things. So maybe it was Vic Armstrong. Maybe it was him. I'm not sure if you he know? was still doing it by yeah. then. Uh, because he was... They say, you know, what you've read is that something happened with Franklin and then they had to have Vic Armstrong. They called in this guy, Vic Armstrong, to come in and, and do a couple of weeks of the movie. Um, Vic Armstrong was the second unit director of FX2. So it's not like they called up some other guy. They just asked allegedly the second unit guy to step up and direct the rest of the movie. Uh, Dion saying that uh, from his research found that uh, there was some kind of personal tragedy or something that occurred that made um, Richard Franklin step out of the picture at towards the end. Some sort of personal uh, problem. From what I was hearing was that he was having creative differences with the producers and, uh, ah. and, but I could. I looked. I tried to find interviews. I really wanted to figure out like what happened. There's nothing on this, but I on could, either one of these movies. Yeah, there was so little information on, especially FX two. Um, but from what I heard, is uh, I don't know the extent of the differences, but apparently they were so bad that he got fed up with like American filmmaking and he went back to Australia and never made another American film. Um, you do hear that. I think I feel like my memory is terrible, but I feel like we've had in the past like English directors or other people. I mean, look at Kubrick. Kubrick left the freaking country after Spartacus and stayed in England the rest of his life and yeah. just did everything over there. But I feel like we've had other instances where people just get really fed up with the Hollywood process and they're like, fuck you guys. Screw you guys. I'm going home. And they just yeah. leave. You know, uh, so yeah, this was his last American movie right before he went back to Australia. The um, director, and then he ended up passing. Uh, Richard Franklin ended up passing away in two thousand seven, and I, and I don't know uh, from what, but uh, clearly, you know, youngish. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so I don't know the extent of that story. Whether it was a death of the family or some kind of social uh, uh, private things that were going on that caused him to pull out um, a little bit early, but. Uh, or if it was that he was just having issues with the studio or the producers uh, and then just got fed up and left the production. Either way, uh, there's an indication that um, Vic Armstrong came in at some point and, uh, and maybe finished the picture. But it didn't, it, I didn't get any kind of indication that like he directed half the movie. Um, yeah, it seemed yeah. like he came in and maybe did the pickups or just did like the... the kind of like the tail end of it um plot wise you know uh they're both rich men now raleigh and leo <laughs> because they yep. they kept the 15 million dollars uh from the first movie supposedly and uh from geneva yeah so he's retired now from the business brian brown effects. left special effects business to make toys yeah and they're, they're, they look like they're kind of dangerous toys that he's making high he's, end uh, he's dangerous used- toys like that you sell like FAO Schwartz or some sort. And then we learn either Brian Denny, he either uh, took early retirement or was 
not fired, but let go of the police department. And he's now out of it. He's no longer a police officer. He took his money and bought an old speakeasy bar that nobody knows where it is. It's, you know, and, he, and it's, it looks exactly as it was when he bought it. So it has, it looks like he lives in a bar almost like yeah. a, with billiards and stuff like that, which is really cool. And he's driving this really awesome black uh, checkered cab that looks right out of Escape from New York. Um, you know, or, uh, uh, what's his face? Ernie Borgnine's car. Wait till I tell Eddie. Like a cab like that, yeah. you know. Eddie's become um, a private detective. And he's become a PI. Yes, he's in because they they bust his ass, uh, bust his balls about like you know you're in the mayor. Because usually with the PI business, I guess when uh, the if you're doing marital stuff, you're on the low end of stuff. You're like that's the racket that people don't re- completely respect because you know it's a little personal for people when you're snooping on other people's relationships or getting blackmail. So yeah, uh, yeah, he's doing that kind of work, and they keep when he ever sees like former co- other cops he used to work with, they kind of. You know, pushes buttons like you're still doing marital work, asshole. <laughs> and you know, and Joanna Gleason, who's kind of seems like a romantic interest interest for a minute, who is I think the DA in the movie, kind of you know, well he's the, pushes his buttons. As you indicated, it. I mean, I don't know since we've been recording for a while. I don't know if it's I, I don't know if it's worth going in kind of like with as much of a description as we did for the first movie. Um, Why it, not? Maybe we can here. <laughs> maybe we could just hit some of the, some of the major set pieces. Um, but as you kind of indicated, when we were talking about the last movie foreshadowing this movie, they're like, Danny, he's a bit of like a ladies man. He's a charmer. And, yeah, uh, I mean, he's got some sort of presence that's very, you know, it's like a Telly Savalas, evidently. He took his mustache off. He's mustacheless in this movie, and he's wearing his Boston Red Sox hat and you know, and it's like the team is back, and it almost like it. I almost wish, you know, Brian Denny sadly's passed away, and that's a great loss. But it would have been awesome for like A and E or PBS to pick up this show and have it be like a detective show, like yeah. an American masterpiece. You know, or, or you know, uh, you know, just them doing something awesome. But, that would have been really, really cool. The two of them, like you know, investigating murders every week. But I, the reason why I, where I was going with this is like he is. He's got. He's like he's got a woman in every port. Because he's yeah. got, <laughs> yeah, yeah. everybody knows him. Because he's got the, you know, the 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 woman from the, uh, you know, the records room that Dion was talking about, who's in the first movie in this movie, and he's certainly he's making his move on her in this movie. Uh, but he's yeah. also got like this chemistry potential love interest going on with uh, Joanna Gleason, who plays the assistant DA uh, in, in this. Movie. Yeah, he loves him and leaves him. Like as Dion indicated. Uh, at the beginning of uh, this podcast five hours ago that uh, FX2 had a great trailer. Um, and it was what got me excited about this movie. Uh, sure. A- and going back and watching it now, the only things I remembered about it going into it were the effect with the shower scene. Oh, okay. I didn't even remember that. And because, you know, boobs were a big deal. For like a twelve-year-old, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's some boobage there. You know, there's fake boobs, literally, and real boobs. Yeah, there's boobage. The, the fake boobs were, but, were not as, uh, as no, not as appealing at all. <laughs> not you as appealing. But you know, to catch to catch a, a little glimpse of a boob uh, for uh, adolescent boys in the early '90s was a big deal because you know it was pre-internet. Big deal. You could, you, and you, then you know you, you took it where you could get no, it sorry. back then. Yeah, this is before you you know you're still trying to find Playboys in the in the closet. Um but this is also, you know, when I watched it, I were you know, I remembered the sequence, the, the shower thing because that was also a very ingenious MacGyverism kind of yeah, a thing. Yeah, yeah. And then of you course know. you remember the clown. 
you know, maybe I, yeah. I, like you, I didn't remember that he fights with the clown in that scene, but I remembered that he had the mechanical clown. Um, yeah, because clowns were very scary as children. People always point that out with the Poltergeist movie, the first one. But this movie was, this is a kind of freaky clown. And for me, I always remembered the opening sequence as well, because that's kind of highlighted in the, in the credits yeah. or in the trailer. So that was always something like, you know, you don't know what the hell is going on. Um, the, now, the opening of this movie, where it's kind of like the first movie where you don't know what's going on at first, and you realize that it, they're shooting a movie. There's this kind of uh, car comes around a corner, crashes, and this thing gets out. It looks like a lady, and it's a, and it, and, but it, you could, it almost then looks like a, a big guy in drag, and then suddenly the cops show up, and there's a shootout, and the thing's getting shot, and there's green coming out, and then all of a sudden, the, half the face gets blown off. It's a robot. The arm gets blown off the leg, and then something comes out of the blown-out arm, and it shoots a missile, blows the car up, and then that's what they call cut, but it was such a... And then, you know, there's green blood. It was such a crazy... You know, you don't know what's going on. So when I saw that when I was little, uh, I was immediately blown away. I was like, this looks freaking awesome. You know, <laughs> just the the wizardry of what, yeah, what's, yeah. you know, it was almost like that um, Gregory Himes movie, you know, where he's he's running after the woman who's a ro- an alien or a robot. I forget the, da- the name of that darn thing. Um, but the, uh, for a minute, I wanted to, which is really interesting here. I didn't realize, look, when we're going through the credits, that there's an actor playing that, cyborg named James Stacy. Mm-hmm. Now James Stacy quickly is really interesting because he passed away in 2016 but he was an older actor of the 50s 60s genre. Um he was an actor that was uh got his height in the 60s doing a lot of episodic TV. He did like an, some Donna Reed in the 50s and early 60s, Ozzie and Harriet, but he got a uh, a Western show called Lancer that was on for a couple years in the late 60s into the early 70s. And after, and then he marries Connie Stevens for a minute, and then he divorces her. And then uh, in 1970, I think it's three, after Lancer, the Western stops, he's taking his then girlfriend, Claire Cox, out for a ride on his motorcycle. And he's T-boned by a drunken driver. His girlfriend is killed. He loses his leg and he loses his arm. So it was this huge thing where uh, it was a big deal, blah, blah, blah. He had all these medical bills piling up because people were, because of all the expenses of what happened. He, they, uh, Connie Stevens, his ex-wife, Frank Sinatra, who he's friends with, Barbara Streisand, all these people hold this big fundraiser and raise like, uh, like over $100,000 for him for his medical expenses. Uh, and then he sues the drunk driver. And he wins in 76, like $1.9 million in damages from the drunk driver. Yes, he's so, lo- I guess he's uh, lucky that the drunk driver had money. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it, it was in Beverly Hills when it happened. He was, it was in the Hollywood Hills that this, all this happened. So maybe it was somebody with money, like you're saying. Um, so in 1975, uh, you know, he's a little dejected because he only has, at this point, one arm and one leg. So Kurt Douglas helps him. Uh, have a comeback in this 1975 Western called Posse. And, he, and Kurt Douglas gives him a specific role in the movie. He has a great comeback. He wins a bunch of awards. Uh, he's in Something Wicked This Way Comes. He's the bartender in that movie. I first came to my attention because he's in an episode of Cagney and Lacey that I was watching a couple years ago because he becomes a romantic interest. Then he's like, well, do you not like me because I'm in a wheelchair? And it's evident that he doesn't have an arm and a leg. So it's like, oh my gosh. So... Uh, he was also married to Kim Darby, who I feel like we brought up in another podcast here, but evidently, so 
near the end of his career, he does this thing in 19... He does, he's in that show for a minute, Wise Guys, that was on, or, or Wise Guy that was on in the... Wise Guy that was on in the late 80s. And this is one of the last roles he does before he retires FX2. So I'm wondering at that point, you know, he's in the movie, he's barely recognizable, and they probably cast him because he didn't have a leg and an arm. And he's in his like 50s or 60s at this point. So uh, I, I don't know if that was him that was in drag when he got out and he had, you know, you're like, oh my God, you know, what the hell? So I wonder if it just got too much and he's like, you know, why am I still in this business? And then to just finish this out, because it's such a bizarre story, that this is 1991. 1995, he pleads no contest to molesting an 11-year-old girl. And he was, he failed to appear uh, for his sentencing and the next day, he's found in Honolulu because he tried to run away. And he's found in a hospital because he tried to attempt suicide by jumping off a cliff. But evidently, he didn't make it or whatever. He didn't commit suicide. So he's brought he, to the hospital. He's extradited from Honolulu back to L.A. And they say, listen, we were only going to give you probation after all this. But because you uh, ran and then he was also arrested two other times for in 1995 for prowling the homes of other girls, which I don't understand how he does that because he's got one arm and one leg. So if he's in a car or whatever the hell. So they say, listen, because you're a flight risk now, you're going to have to serve your time. So he serves six years in Chino for, for the molesting charge. He gets out and then jump to a 2016. He dies of anaphylactic shock in uh, Ventura, California, after his physician is administering him an antibiotic injection. So he just ends up dying just because of that and to top it all off the reason i'm bringing all this up is last year 2019 we had once upon a time in hollywood that quentin tarantino movie there's a deleted scene in that where timothy orifat plays him because his partner in the movie was uh the actor that um what's his name from 90210 who passed away luke perry yeah, Luke Perry plays that character in the Western. So there's a scene that's in the deleted scenes of Timothy Orifat and, and Luke Perry together because they're playing, there's, they're supposed to be in the, that Western Lancer. So he's playing, Timothy Orifat's playing James Stacy in the movie. So I know it just took a long time to talk, but it's just such a weird and bizarre career that I don't know if anybody our age even knows who the guy is. And then he's unrecognizable in this movie. I didn't even realize because at certain points it's a prosthetic, it's a robot. Yeah. You know that, and then they even play it that it's a robot because they have to turn it off, and then it starts walking past the Hollywood crew like turn it off, and then this is our entrance to Brian Brown because he grabs the rope, turns around, pours his like his soda into it, and that fries it. Which Jesus, from a Hollywood perspective, would be terrible. Like you yeah. ruin this million dollar machine. Don't you think you know? it would have been smarter so, if he just like turned it off? Yeah, not been an asshole and poured. Well, you like know, because he's in the know. He'd like, know how to turn it off. Yeah, he would know. Like he'd say, like, you know, he would have, know the tricks to turn it off, not just short out the system with some sticky soda. Yeah. <laughs> so then they start yelling at him, and then suddenly the director and the special effects guy recognize Brian. So that's the end of James Stacy, uh, R.I.P. But uh, they recognize him in the crowd, Brian Brown, because he's there watching with his son, or is it his girlfriend's step-son son? Stepson or stepson? It's not his son for sure. It's either his stepson or like his girlfriends or fiance's son yeah so he's recognizing the crowd they're like come back and help us and they're like no i'm retired i make toys now and all that kind of a thing and then as the movie progresses the first thing we end up seeing is this toy he's made where it's this clown suit which is at the time something they were doing like jim henson and stuff were doing where you do that you get into a 
a glove or something, and then you do the the motion capture, and the computer kind of captures it. He's doing one of these things where you put the suit on, and then you could uh, the the clown, the full a full sized freaking clown that's about four feet tall or five feet tall mimics whatever you're doing. And it seems to be inherently very dangerous if it's a child's toy because, gosh, you could have a kid put the suit on and then beat up his parents <laughs> because th- this thing evidently can beat somebody up, as we learn later on in the movie. Yeah. But um, so that was that's a quick aside there for the opening. Really caught my attention as a kid because this is 1990, 91. We're into stuff like Alienation at the time. We're into all these different shows that were kind of like Cyborg, Android. So like, you know, seeing this crazy opening with no yeah. kind of frame of reference. And, and like then the animatronic. Thing. You know, even, oh, when fabulous. They, even when they cut away from, I mean, clearly they use an actor who's missing limbs so that they can put like robotics, you know, prosthesis on, on him. But um, even when it's clearly... Uh, an animatronic, mission, you know, version of them. It's really good. I mean, it's yeah. That's what I mean. It's frightening. It's like rah, rah, rah. you can see inside of his head and stuff in the green shit. It's kind of scary. Looking. You know, better than some other movies. You know, around the time or or just before it. Sure. You know? So, uh, you know, they're totally a great opening scene. I I love that they use. You know, it's it, it's almost in a weird way, like it's a remake of the first one you know it's one of those kinds of sequels where they take the original one uh, they use the structure they try to follow yeah, a the lot structure. of the same scenes you yeah know, like uh, we're familiar with yeah, like we it opens with a fake movie it ends with some european location <laughs> and right then he doesn't come into like 20 minutes in or a little later when he needs help because they haven't talked in a while you know you and know. in between you know it's uh, you know raleigh should have known better he you know he didn't remember what happened last time. He shouldn't have gotten involved with the cops one more time. Um, yeah. But he ends up, in this case, kind of like witnessing something. And then he's kind of on the run uh, from the police again, but uh, for different reasons, different scenario. But And again, kind of needs Brian Dennehy oh. to help kind of solve the mystery <laughs> of what's going on. Um, that's silly. Yeah, I didn't think of the puzzle piece. Is that is that? Yeah, uh, um, what's her name? Uh, who he's dating is is divorced from her husband, who's the kid's father, and he's the cop, and he's the one that says, "Listen, we need your help." And uh, you know, and he seems like a very nice guy. The 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 fa- the, the, the ex husband. So. Uh, he gives him a couple minutes of his time. He's telling him what's going on. And then again, he's thinking about it. You know, women are getting hurt or whatever. And it's funny. They, they do the old when a stranger calls maneuver. I feel like that Blake and I joke about from the, the Charles Durning movie, when a stranger calls where they just lure, it's like almost entrapment yeah. where they just lure this guy. They, they, they it's like, um, Peter Lorre's M. They, 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 they pull this guy till he, he his psychologically has to act. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. when Charles Durning he, he he makes the guy reoffend because the guy goes to jail, does his time for the opening sequence, and when a stranger calls, and then uh, I haven't seen the movie in twenty years since you and I watched it, but it feels like Durning is pushing him so hard when he gets out of jail, he almost reoffends drives of drives that, you know? him to reoffend yeah because he's got something wrong upstairs he's like i know you're gonna do it again and when you do i'm gonna be there <laughs> so it's like that's kind of like here where they they set this thing up where they uh where this guy is it's almost like a rear window where this guy is at a hotel across the way or a room and he's watching this girl shower and they know he's going to act upon it with the knife so they said that's why they need brian brown is they need to set it up so it's safe 
So it looks like the girl getting into the shower, showering, but in real, it's uh, the ex-husband who's the son of the guy, you know, the girl he's dating. He's going to be in prosthetics dressed up as a lady, so he'll be there as the undercover cop, a la Nighthawks, yeah. Stallone style, where he's going to be there with the dress on and the, in the bathrobe, except Stallone didn't wear boobs in it. So... You know, and it's great effects of the time. It's like, oh, okay, this, you know, where again, we get that little montage like we had with Jerry Orbach putting the makeup on. You have him showing how he's going to do it. They set up the camera, and then, like, you know, the captain, what's his face, is a little horn dog. He's like, I'm going to stay in the room <laughs> when they get the girl to take her clothes off, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Phil Bosco. And, um, then it goes wrong. Like, they have a fog machine, all this kind of stuff, and they've got remote receivers. Uh, Brian Brown's even got GoPros. <laughs> you know, yeah. he hides GoPros in the room ahead of their time, and uh, he witnesses that there's somebody else in the apartment that slices the throat of the cop, and it's not even the guy they lured in there. But then, uh, all of a sudden, the cops run in, and the guy doesn't even have blood on his knife. He holds his hands up and they shoot him anyway. The, the captain Bosco. And they're like, Oh, he's, you know, he, and then they, you know, he's, it's a pretty good sequence. And they run over and the poor uh, ex-husband is dead. The cop that was hiding as the, uh, as the, the woman in the shower. Yeah. And that becomes the MacGuffin of, um, what's his face? See, he, he, when he's, yeah, he's Brian Brown's running up there and he passes the guy on the stairs and he realized that that must be the guy. So he gives chase. They run after him downstairs. And then he, he almost gets run down. The guy's driving like a Monte Carlo, almost runs him down. And uh, luckily, he's able to get out of the way. And, and that guy gets away. And that guy almost becomes like a little, like a Terminator kind of a guy. He's pretty cool when he comes back and tries to kill him. Or when, the, you know, the, the car, when he's, he's chasing Brian Brown and then he's appearance. But we can get to that in a second. So that sets up the issue of what's going on in the movie. And then you have this huge plot that we learn later on, which I'm into, but people kind of give it, uh, critics gave it a little guff. It's like that the mob is connected to the Vatican and Michelangelo, these gold pieces that Michelangelo minted himself that were uh, copies of what was up, up in the Sistine Chapel. And th they were stolen years ago by this, by this uh, uh, kind of uh, jewel thief, a cat burglar that's now doing life in Rikers. So uh, he's dying of some sort of emphysema <laughs> or cancer. Yeah, I don't know. It, I, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I went with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, since you mentioned that people might have... It does seem like a kind of plot where they're like, somebody had this plot for another... It's like, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's like <laughs> they lift it on there. It's like, it's very involved. Yeah, yeah. They kind of just like, brush off. Well, what if we just took that and we put... And we made it an FX too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and they're like, it was that's somebody, a great idea. It was like somebody else's script for something completely different. Like, why don't we just use because that in this movie? Because you can have that. That could be a plot for a heist movie. That could be a plot for like one of those uh, the Tom Hanks movies, that the, the Da Vinci Code movie. Yeah, yeah. It could be a uh, like a Tom Clancy movie. It could be a, 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 a 70s espionage, Three Days of the Condor kind of movie. So, yeah, they just took this template but I was and threw into it in it. here. I didn't think anything oh, of so it. Oh, so was I. I, I loved it. I went yeah. along for the ride. And it also gives them the opportunity to get some, like, we're going to shoot one day in a European country, so let's make the most of it. Yeah, <laughs> like we did the last time. We got Geneva for the last shot. We're going to get the Vatican we'll, in this We'll shot. just spend a day on a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll do the exactly. same in Italy for this one. We'll end it the same way. Yeah, that's what they do in the Dirty Harry movies. They always end it the same with the helicopter shot. Uh, uh, and so once all that happens, and what you know, they, they I think they kind of realize that uh, I was going to say Clancy Brown, Brian Brown, is kind of in on, is is onto them. They send the assassin after him, and yeah. uh, there's that great sequence because they have a pretty nice apartment, 
And there's, again, it's the same kind of thing where he's fighting for his life in this beautiful apartment where he's, uh, you know, the, the fish tank with the gun and all that kind of stuff and all, you know, all these great set pieces in this really uh, postmodern 80s kind of apartment, you know, that he has with all the money he's got. And, you know, then he, he's able to put the, the, the clown costume on and then that's the scene where he gets the clown to beat the guy up. For him, which is kind of crazy. So sometimes you can tell there's somebody in the clown costume, and then when he picks it up, it'll change and it won't be somebody. So that's kind of freaky. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's a doll sometimes, but sometimes it's it's like a Twilight Zone episode. There some great set pieces in this movie. I mean, that one is a big one. Um, Clearly, the 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 shower scene we were talking about, not just for the boobs, but that like we're seeing the execution of an effect, which is like Dion said, kind of the equivalent of the Jerry Orbach molding scene. We're seeing the behind the scenes, and we're getting the wow factor of of, of moving magic happening, you know, coming to life in the context of the movie. The clown fight scene, uh, big set piece, and then um, I feel like the, the the next really big set piece is the uh, grocery store, which is like now it's in we're in chase. Uh, you know, everything's going down. I, I do, before I get to that, though, there is, when he calls Brian, he calls uh, Brian Dennehy, he calls Leo and leaves a message. He should have said something like, hey, Leo, it's Raleigh. Uh, it's happening again. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> you know, like, I need your help. It's happened again. You know, I got set it up like, Denny, he's like Batman almost. Like, you know, you don't see him at first. It's just a phone call and a voicemail, and they zoom in or something, you know, and you don't even see him until he comes, shows up in his black car. Yeah. Well, you know, they don't even just very... say, like, him, him, like, hit, you just see a finger hit the, uh, yeah, he just comes in the, and he's like, so hey, it comes in the frame, and you don't even see him yet. Hey, it's Raleigh again. I don't know if you're getting these messages. And then <laughs> you're right. Then he just, trouble. like, shows up in his bat, in his map, Batmobile, old, uh, black, yeah. painted black cab, and saves yeah, checkered the day. cab, and, and that's a great sequence because I think that's when there's the fight scene in the in the house. He gets outside, and then the the, the killer in the Monte Carlo, I think it's a Monte Carlo or a Cutlass, tries to run him down. He's ho- hanging on to the to the uh, to the fire escape, but then then he comes, pushes the car, and the car gets freaking. Uh, the top cut off because it goes under a trailer. Yeah. So you think the guy's dead, and then all of a sudden the car starts reversing and it's stuck there. It's very scary. So he's almost like unstoppable. Yeah. And Denny he opens the top of his car. He's like, "Get in!" Like he has a sunroof, <laughs> and he jumps in. And Denny he's got his, you know, he's got his uh, Boston hat on. It's like old times. They get away. Um, there's a couple things where it's like so. Uh, it's funny the video resolution. So uh, while we were watching it, I was like, "Oh, I wonder if if he's tape. It could just be a video feed. He watches the murder happen, or is he recording?" And we find out he was recording the feed. So what he's able to do is take the feed. And there's a lot of uh, '80s <laughs> yeah. tech in this, which movie, I love. '80s movie tech, yeah. Yeah, so you have like him looking painstakingly looking at the footage of when the the fog machine is steaming up the place to simulate a shower, and that's getting it hard to see. He's barely able to see right at the moment when his friend is his throat slit, but he's able to zoom in and he's able to hit that resolution button. And it's a ma- movie magic where he's able yeah. to just you know it, it, as it, you know the, it, the the pixel resolution is so good. I'm surprised that he's able I'm to get a place. He, I'm surprised he didn't then print it out. You yeah, know. exactly. <laughs> and he's, he's a, but he's able to get a clear picture of the guy a moments before he slits his 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 yeah. son's uh, his. Is uh, the, the guy's throat? But then it's and, great because uh, to me, then it's, because then it's great because then it's like, oh, this is the guy, and then it's like the shot of the screen, and then the guy walks up the stairs. You know, like he, oh, it's freaky as hell. Like he, 
almost found out too late. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I noticed in this movie, it's like when, when, the, when the cop who ends up getting killed is trying to get uh, him to be a part of it. They walk outside. They're on the street, and they're talking. And in the background, you can see there's a Johnny Winter like poster yeah, on the wall. The po- like a, like you know? a, yeah, like a, oh, Johnny Winter show's coming up. Put it on the yeah, calendar. Yeah, it's coming up someplace. Like, yeah, so I, was, I, I saw that. I was like, oh, look at this freaking Johnny Winter in the background. Um, so, and then you also get, so then they, they, you know, they go over to the, to the house. They, they, they go to the house and the cops are already there and they're trying to get, uh, it's the father's house where I guess they used to live. And the kid has his own room there with them. And the cops are already there looking through stuff and yeah. they're looking through. And then suddenly you have the one cop who's on the computer and the kid had a computer in his room and he's putting the hard disks in, the little disks, and he's going through all these different stuff. And it's suddenly it's like a flashback of all that where you yeah, put yeah. a disk in. This is my the little disc of Oregon Trail. <laughs> Yeah, this is my disc of Carmen San Diego. You know, so then you get the Beckard, and he, he's like, the kid just wants his games, so they they let him take the games away, and uh, uh, that's very funny. But then later on, when he Brian Brown's scared for their safety, he brings them to the to the what's her face's sister's house to hide out in Jersey, and when. They realize what they need. They call the kid up and they're like, we need you to send us the file. And I was like, this is 1991. And they're like, can you send it by modem? And I was like, oh my God. And the kid's like, sure, I could do that. And they're like, go to a computer store at the mall. Yeah. So he goes to the mall and he basically sends them an email attachment, right? It's like so high tech at the time, you know, because I didn't have a computer for another couple of years in the house. No, no, that was high tech right there. That was like, yeah, like this thing called a modem and we could send information. Let's put it in the movie. Yeah. And so, you know, so. Denny, he goes back. We're jumping around a bit, but Denny, he goes to his old assistant from the first movie, the tech girl, and he has him call up, and she's like, she directs him, and then he sends, he starts sending over the info that's on the disc, which is the secret file that the MacGuffin of the movie that the cops really want because it was about uh, the yeah. cops' involvement in this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, you know? in a nutshell, so, what's going on is there's like an old unsolved case that uh, that the. Uh, Brian Brown's girlfriend's ex-husband, the father of the boy, is is has been, I guess, doodling around on, and he's gonna solve it or something. I, I, you know, I don't know why they need to kill him, but uh, uh, essentially, like, it's involved with this old. Apparently, it's set up that cops will take unsolved cases and they'll kind of work on them in their in their free time. Um, it's like shit, Bob or shit bar. I shit couldn't. Pile, we rounded three says. times. I think it's on the. I shit, couldn't remember what the. I think it's oh, a shit pile. Okay. Shit pile. Like it's the shit pile because, um, and uh, he gets killed because he's working on this case, which is the case that Dion talked about earlier, which is like this thief steals while the where there's a Vatican exhibit at the at the Met. He ends up stealing these gold medallions that were pressed by uh, uh, by Michelangelo of the you know of the stations of the cross or the or whatever it is the thing it was that, like, yeah either sistine chapel or the different stages of the, so, yeah, something the cross have to of, do with the sistine chapel and uh and uh and they caught the guy and the guy's doing life in jail but uh they never got the medallions and uh, yeah he hit him somewhere so you know like all great New York cops in the FX movies, you have someone in a position of power <laughs> in it for the money and willing to yeah. uh, sacrifice everything and throw his, you know, he, he, he's able to retire at any time he wants. He's been in the force that long, but he wants the big payday. Uh, and unfortunately, Brian Brown gets caught up in the middle of that because he uh, had cameras up and was able to witness this framing of uh, this killer 
for the death of uh, for the murder of Brian Brown's girlfriend's ex husband, and then you know, and then again, it becomes like kind of the, like that Hitchcockian man, everyday man thrown into extraordinary circumstances on the run, um, and while trying to serve, uh, while trying to solve the mystery, uh, to 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 you know clear his name, um, yeah, and get a little like vengeance for or for the for the cop because he was you know because he's connected to it personally with the son. You know, it was his dad and all that. Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, that's kind of how... And, of course, there's an FX movie, so the mob's involved. I mean, they're very... It seems like, like you said, I kind of love that there are... Check like, all the boxes. They, you know, like, let's just, you know, what are we going to do? Let's uh, kind of just, like, restructure the original movie, change the MacGuffin uh, and, 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 and stuff. But I kind of love that about it. And, like I said, we get a little more of... Uh, Bride Dead, he being a bit of a ladies' man, uh, playing it up. But uh, we also get um, not, you know, we do get some more special effects MacGyvering happening at the end of the movie. Yeah. But uh, we just get good old fashioned MacGyvering happening throughout the movie. Um, most of, uh, most notably, when they're on the run from the Terminator Hitman guy that the had. <laughs> Uh, brought up before, he's uh, he's kind of like the guy from um, Commando. You know the bad guy that's in um, Inner Space. Yeah, yeah. The Australian guy. Yeah, he's kind of has that kind of like scary. You don't know if he's gonna <laughs> take his finger off and choose it to shoot yet. Yeah, you know. But uh, he uh, he goes to the mall. I guess he follows the mom to the mall to get uh, to get the kids at the mall. Yeah, the computer store. Yeah, to yeah. get the disc. Um, and then Brian Brown shows up there. <laughs> Where is it, the rocket? <laughs> Where's the rocket? The rocket. Uh, that'd be cool. Have imagine that was Rondo Hatton coming after him. <laughs> Jesus, that'd be scary as oil. But uh, it culminates in this: like uh, they get locked at a supermarket attached to the mall, um, and uh, and nobody calls for backup. Nobody. No. There's like this guy's coming and waving a gun, and he even pushes. The, the, it looks like the, the manager of the supermarket yeah. out what? and locks the door. And not, the manager, to mention, not to mention that he shot the security guard in the leg. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, he shot the security guard, but there's no backup call to no nothing. <laughs> Nobody called So then they're stuck, in this, yeah, they're stuck in this supermarket running around, and it's very much like almost – I was thinking like Cobra, you know, the beginning of Cobra in the yeah. supermarket. Like it's like you're running around, and, and then, yeah, he starts doing – you're right. He starts MacGyvering in there. He's like taking stuff. And, He's taking you know, shoe maybe, polish, always, puts it in. I guess back in the day you would go to the supermarket, and there'd be barrels full of corn kernels. Uh, so if yeah. you wanted to – you Who wouldn't knew? just buy a bag of a, – a, a jar of – of uh, yeah. popcorn you would fill up your bag serve yourself yeah like the, I, I don't remember that as a kid but i remember walnuts and sure. i and i remember uh pickles yeah there'd be a barrel yeah, of pickles some some places still do that you know but they're like please wash your hands and don't touch the stuff yourself <laughs> you know but i was almost half expecting a voiceover so you gotta remember shoe polish <laughs> is a very flammable thing so if you take that and add it to some you're gonna have a fun time yeah, you know yeah. and then he takes the beans he takes the he takes the hairspray and he heats the beans up and the, kind of look the low, beans low, explode low torches out of the hairspray and uh, yeah he, he put throws oil on the ground and then lights it on fire and uh yeah and then the guy just stands there and he catches fire and he rolls around and what does he, <laughs> he throw runs towards it <laughs> Yeah, he's like, oh, shit, fuck, that didn't work. <laughs> you know, he's like, I'm on a timetable. You know, so it's great, and it's funny because in this movie too, there's a little more esteem for Brian Brown, maybe because so like, um, you know, I've been ro- in the past couple of years, I've been watching some of the Gordon Ramsay shows. So for me, he's got a very Gordon Ramsay presence, where he's like, I'm gonna need this, 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 and then he goes into the 
to the old he goes and finds the old FX he goes like his storage locker and he gets the old FX gear and it has the old logo that was on the step truck FX which I enjoy and he opens it up so he's like he's going back to his old life yeah. you know so he's getting stuff out and, you know in. so it was, yeah it's all fun so you know Denny he rescue, rescues him from the initial truck hit they go back to Denny's hideout and that's another thing I always remember from the trailer that I laughed at that I remembered when he opens the door and he has uh Brian Brown going first and he gets scared by the monster from the first movie yeah. and that's always funny where Denny he's like I've been waiting five years to do that you know and then the the sequence in there where they're sitting in there and then he eats some of the peanuts and I j- laughed at that out loud where he's like I have, don't eat that it's been here for five years from, <laughs> from who I bought it from <laughs> you know and that's when they start getting, the, that's when we get into the minutia of the plot. They start sitting there uh, brainstorming and they're like, what, what are, you know, and then they realize what's going on. And then we get that MacGuffin of the, of the Sistine Chapel, uh, Michelangelo plot. And then Danny, he calls his girl up and the old lady from the first movie, he goes down there. He entices her with tickets to Jamaica. They kiss. They're like, oh, that's great. He gets, they get half the disc. And then when it, we then they start getting gibberish, and what we didn't realize is that it's the hitman had come to the mall, like you said, and yeah. it began that sequence. He wasn't able to to transmit all of it, but it was enough for Denny he to read through and recognize some names and figure out that what, what these names are hiding. Yeah. So he is so happy he takes his girl out for Chinese food That's in Chinatown. Chinese food in New York. Yeah, and he in, goes to this in little Toronto's cart. version of New York's Chinatown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he's like, hey, Ming. He's like, he knows the guy. And the guy's like, hello, Brian Denny. And he's cooking him up like this stuff. And it was like, I, it made me want to go. Like, this looks great, these people. Uh, yeah, and then all of a sudden, car comes around the corner and takes her out. She's not even able to bite into it. The empanada. No, it's not an empanada, but whatever he was eating. Spring roll. And spring roll. And it was, um, it was a horrific sequence. I didn't even see that coming. She gets shot in a drive-by. Yeah. Denny, he ducks. And it's so sad. That's not like, oh, my gosh, she killed Denny, he's girl now, who was with us for the first FX movie. Uh, you know, and there's no coming they're back. Finally, it's like, what's her face? They're finally yeah. going to be together after five years. And, and she's about to bite he's into already the relationship her shit. in that spring like, Don't put the mustard on there. That's disgusting. Yeah, what the fuck? You're, <laughs> you're, you're going to kill the roof of your mouth. You, <laughs> Jesus Christ, don't you know anything? <laughs> It's it's all gonna. She's like, don't worry, I like the heat, I like the heat, and then she's not able. Then she's killed, and then that it makes it a little more personal yeah. for for Denny. Cut at to that next point, scene, which Brian, is really Brian sad. Denny, he's putting the putting the moves on someone else. Yeah. Hey, love him and leave him. You know, he's 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 all over the place. And I like that the girl, um, the the ex the ex wife in the movie from um, what's his, what's her name? Uh, Rachel uh, Ticonin, Ticotin. She's driving like a Saab because you don't really see Saabs anymore. Yeah, yeah. It was an old car. Well, that was days. that was the so, fun thing about this movie was seeing all the cars. Because yeah, like Brian Brown's old, van. Like, oh. It's like, oh yeah, remember those vans? Or, yeah, uh, it's great. The step van and then the uh, the Monte Carlo or the the, the 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 some of the cop cars or the um, uh, the checkered cab. So we find out because the what's his guy that what's his face that we brought up that was in. Uh, Deep Rising and all that. He's been treating the guy who's dying in the infirmary in Rikers. And he's been getting his confidence. And then the guy's getting the last rites because he's about to die. And he's like, tell me where the fucking thing is. You need to tell me. Tell somebody where the stuff is. So he tells him where it is. And then the next day, Bosco, who's the cop, is able to get, uh, what's his name, out of Rikers. And they go to... And it's, it's interesting for me because they go to... We find out that he hid the things in plain sight. In, in the St. Patrick's Cathedral. So you see them double park the car. They put a police placard on. And you can see in the background Radio City Music Hall. So you know they're right by. They're like on 48th or 49th. They're right by 
St. Patrick's. You get an establishing shot of St. Patrick's, but then when you go inside St. Patrick's, I, I would bet you five dollars they didn't shoot inside St. Patrick's. Yeah, because it's so tight. You know, because you think if if they were there, they'd give you a freaking long shot because St. Patrick's is like five stories high inside. You know, yeah, it's yeah. huge, and you don't get any of that. But he goes into the confessional, and he he finds in the confessional under the seat is where the guy hit these these things. And then they make a run for it. They go out to Long Island, and they're on this nice estate in Long Island. And then that's when Brian Brown and um, Denny he realize that that's where they're meeting the mob, and the mob's gonna take take these things. And uh, then you get again, you know, both Denny he and Brian Brown are on a let's fucking kill them all kick. Uh, like <laughs> he goes the first Rambo movie. running around. You know, yeah, he, he goes Rambo again. He sets all these elaborate traps. And when I was little. You know, I really remember that trap where the guy steps on it and he gets propelled into the air and knocks himself out. That was what I remembered. But it's like he's got this little submarine. There's a guy standing on the on the dock, and this little sub comes out of the water, and the guy's like, what? He looks down, and the sub has a little, like, thing. He shoots a dart, and it's like Brian Brown, you see, is controlling it on some uh, controls way over, like, you know, I don't know beyond in the back and it's like how can he see the sub come up let alone he's able to hit the guy in the neck perfectly and that either kills the guy or incapacitates him i'm like wow that's a really lucky shot yeah yeah. um so uh and then you find out like then brian then he he the the mob meets up with the cops mob brings their own guy to authenticate the the things and they're there and then you find out brian then he shows up and he's like i'm here and i know what you guys are doing you know and then he gets a gun to his head. You find out it's Joanna Gleason. She's part of it. The, the yeah, I saw like, that. Oh, the minute he's handed her a oh. gun, I was like, I don't trust this this girl. Oh, with the Dylan. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see it. I was. I was along for the ride. I was like, <laughs> Oh my god. I was like, She's part of it too. Yeah, so it's she's a little in on unclear it. because it's like, um, it's you know set up. It's supposed to be like they know ahead of time that this is where it is. I guess it's because Brian Dennehy says at some point like they got a chopper, chopper baby. <laughs> It's a chopper, baby. <laughs> um, so I guess they knew where it was going to be because it would have taken Brian Brown some time to get there and uh, start setting everything up. Um, yeah, he took. I mean, it's it's intricate. It's not like he just showed up with the projector yeah. uh, f- f- screen like in the first movie. He's got stuff hidden in the ground. So I think they say that oh, he's been out here days before. <laughs> so he really, you know, he really did a, a killing field. You know, he, he set a whole bunch of crap up. <laughs> it's so. Like, they could have just sent the cops in earlier. There was no reason for Brian Brown to be running around. <laughs> Killing, like, his own, and he, you know, Cuba, and he just, just, just to do it. Which is yeah, a funny he's, joke. Yeah, it, That's <laughs> exactly, a and he knocks the guy out. But it's like, all these things are so integral, they could go wrong so easily, but in the world of, and these movies, who cares? It's going to be yeah. fine. And, um... Uh, and then also we should make mention like in the back half of the movie, Denny, he's wearing like a sweet leather jacket walking around and like, totally you know, he's like had some sweet jackets. Leather jacket. Yeah. So he gives the gun he gives, they end up shooting Denny. They shoot him a couple times. He gets shot. He falls down dead. And I was like, oh my God, they shot Brian Denny. And then you, spoiler alert, you learn later on that it's just that they had done the same trick. You know, he had, he had one, like a, yeah. um, some squibs a switch on his it was squibs and he sh- used it on himself and it was blanks he's like i wouldn't give you a real fucking gun you dumb bitch <laughs> <laughs> i knew the whole time you know um and then you know i liked that there was the, what they were hiding the key the whole time and the cat remember it was samson he, the, the, yeah. when he went over there was a call back to the cat she owned and that had a MacGuffin excuse and then um they think they get away the bad guy, Bosco, grabs the mob. The mob, it's great. It's kind of admirable where you find out that the mob just wants to 
get the stuff back to the Vatican because of the Italian connection. They don't even want to take it themselves. Yeah, they're paying, they're just returning I think it. it's ten million. Yeah, it's ten million, and they want to return it. So they, Brian Dennehy and Brian Brown, grab the stuff and they take the money. And um, well, they don't have the money. That what's his face has the money. He gets into the helicopter. Bosco, the evil captain, he leaves. And then it's a terrifying sequence because then you turn around and it's the hell. It's the it's the clown flying the helicopter. Yeah, yeah. And not only is the clown flying the helicopter, it's the clown is. Um, it, 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 he's alone up there with the thing. So uh, Brian Brown's able to control the clown. You know, it's a good reveal. They're flying away. The clown turn. It's the clown. Then well, the I clown jumps out of the helicopter. I think he's controlling the helicopter, which was a little bit of a callback to the kid was flying the helicopter in the apartment. Oh, the Huey. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think Brian Brown is actually flying the helicopter via a remote control, like it's a remote control Oh, he jerry-rigged it. I see, I see. But he's also got the clown in there because he needs the clown to reach around and grab the, the money. But the, the helicopter only comes quickly because Brian Brown the whole time is hiding out as the landscaper. He's driving around on the on the little tractor, and he runs up to the helicopter. He's like, hey, mate. And then he, I think, he, what, does he knock out the helicopter? So he must be able quickly to hotwire the helicopter. <laughs> well, he's Brian Brown. You know? Hey, he's Brian Brown. He's MacGyver. So suddenly, the helicopter takes off. They're over like Long Island Sound. The the guy thinks he got away. He turns around, and it's the it's the clown. He starts freaking out. The clown grabs the money, jumps off into the water, and the guy's by himself. And that's so terrifying. They just leave him up there. <laughs> yeah, they leave him up there. He grabs the controls and he's trying to hold on. He's up, just you know, he's flying around up there. So they grab the money. They got $10 million now from the clown before it sinks. They've got the bars. And then uh, they did the switcheroo. You know, uh, at some point, the mob thought they got the bars and ran. The, yeah. the, but Brian Brown at some point switched them out. And then Denny, he's like, no, you shouldn't have switched them out because the mob is just trying to return them. And he's like, well, now one told me. He's like, fuck, you know. So the last sequence of the movie is they go to the Vatican. And, it's, you know, they're in the church. They go to mass at the giving, Vatican. And, uh and they're they're going through for this for their taking donations at that point where they're you know where they're p- passing the thing and they put the the coins in there which is really nice uh, and it's funny you know and then he's gonna keep one he pushes it you know and then they walk out and it's a nice long you know it's they're in the square there where the the Pope like every Wednesday gives a free uh, mass for everybody to come see and they walk out and it's a nice long shot get into like almost like a semi rickshaw or maybe it's a, it's a horse and buggy and they take off and then that's the end of it you know this nice little sequence. Uh, Let's see. What, what have we missed? So it's just, it's fun all around, like all that aspect of it. I mean, it gets a little silly and zany, um, you know, near, near the end where they, where they, uh, when they're in Long Island and he's killing everybody, he's, you know, dispatching them very quickly, you know. Um, but when this movie ends up coming out, it's not as, as successful as the first one and kind of people kind of give it some shit like the reviews are mixed you know it's like they like the gadgetry but it's not as good as the original or you know Denny it's a good movie because Denny he the larger than life Denny he's this great Irish cop who you know gets equal screen time with Brian Brown so it's like there's a lot of back and forth and people think that like the like I said the mafia Vatican connection is kind of silly or you know it's far-fetched so you know, but I enjoy it. It's it's you know it's it's all very nice, and it's especially the tech of the time, like we said, the modems and the stuff. Modems. It's like, um, yeah, I like uh, it. Somebody, I mean, it was fun. Yeah. I mean, it definitely has a different tone than the first one, but not yeah, so kind of riding off the co- coattails. Of the first. It's one. not so drastically different that it's jarring. It's not like the difference in tone from like Escape from New York to Escape from L.A. 
which is another Correct. movie that kind of uses all the same beats, uh, is, yeah. is made even longer after the first movie. Um, Escape from Light takes all the basically the same beats of Escape from New York and kind of remakes it in a much more blatant way than FX2 does, but uh, but in a more lighthearted, comedic way. Uh, this one, I think, is, has a little more tongue-in-cheek uh, lightness to it, but uh, not jarringly uh, over the top with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I can see why people didn't like it as much as the original, but um, at the same time, I think it's a fun sequel uh, because I don't know how you could do it again without kind of blatantly bringing attention to the fact that we've already done this. You know what I mean? <laughs> By changing yeah, the we've tone already... a little bit. Um, in a way, like I feel like it would have been more less successful to try to do it um, in a more, you know, in a more, in, in a manner that's more, uh, that's closer to, to the original movie. Um, I don't know, maybe had it come out closer to the original, people would have felt differently about it. It's hard to tell. Um, you know, it comes out, you know, nowadays as adults, we think of six years as nothing. I mean, it seems like, you know, we started doing this podcast almost six years ago, and it doesn't seem like yeah. it. But at the time, so looking back, it's, but looking back, you think of like six years is a you know, a long time, especially from eighty six to ninety one. That's a lot of yeah, lot of stuff happening. Five, five, five to six years is is um, yeah. a whole other kind of cinema. You know, happened was happening. It's definitely well, it debuted number one on the uh, you know, the weekend it opened. Yeah, which is good. You know, that used to mean something. It's definitely you know? more akin so. to the the tone of the movies of the of the early nineties. Yeah, and uh, it's fun. There's a lot of jokes. Like there's the cocktail joke. They cut to the bar and. Brian, uh, Brian Cox, Brian Denny's trying to like you know throw the stuff <laughs> in the air. Brian Cox would have been great in this movie too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could have threw him in the VA. He could have been the, the corrupt police captain. You know, uh, you know. So there's a lot of what ifs you could have had in here. Well, that, that's our own what ifs, not the real what ifs. But um, you know, so it's just it, it, it. There's a lot of inside jokes and stuff, and I think they have a great chemistry together. Um, Brian Brown and Brian Denny. Yeah, it's, um, uh, I would have liked to have seen. Um, I don't know, maybe even another FX movie, but it's something else where they're teamed up because I thought they were good together. I would have liked to seen this, you know, Leo and uh, what's his name? Rory, not Rory. It's uh, uh, Raleigh. Raleigh. So Raleigh and Leo. I would love that. Raleigh and Leo are back and they're solving mysteries. I mean, we never you saw know. the uh, the FX, the series. Oh, yeah. Um, so then there's a series that comes out in what, 96? 96. 96. So it's a 96, 97 season and then a 97, 98 season. So this comes out just before you and I head to college. Uh, and apparently they turned it into uh, a, a short-lived television series um, starring the same character. It's about, from what I can tell, it is about Raleigh Ta- Tyler, obviously, but not uh, played by Brian Brown. I don't see a Leo. In, oh, no, wait. Leo McCarthy, season one, played by Kevin Dobson. Yeah. It would have been nice if they brought Brian Brown in it for some some kind of connection. Yeah, like uh, but, Highlander, the Highlander series. Uh, Christopher Lambert's in the in the pilot with yeah the new Duncan McLeod with the new McLeod from the Cotton McLeod. Um, but this is yeah. A, but then you said you know this is we were, what's talk, names in it we were talking about before we started rolling. This was a period, a very unique and interesting period in television history, which is like you know I I where like these 
syndicated, low-budget television shows became really big. I mean, I don't know if it started with Raimi, but Raimi and Tapper doing like Hercules and Xena, yeah, uh, those became really popular. Um, like those weren't necessarily done for network the way television kind of was done before that. It was like they'd make these shows and then they would sell them to whatever market and they would, and then the market would air them uh, wherever they wanted. I mean, some shows started out as network shows on Fox, like 21 Jump Street or Friday the 13th, the series, and then kind of became syndicated shows in later seasons um, after the network dropped them. Um, But, uh, you know, from our youth, you had like Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, (laughs) which was one that I Alien Nation. Alien Nation. Although that might have actually been a thing. Actually might have been a... Alien Nation might have been a Fox show, but you're right. That very well could have been syndicated. Swamp Thing was one. Yeah, that was a Fox show. Yeah, Um, Swamp Thing, I remember being on USA. But these are... I was citing examples of... Movie, shows All that were based off of movies. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, like Movie that. Properties. So we're suddenly you like have the these, Crow. you know, and this, the Crow had its own show. And, Which uh, was uh, very you know, much in the vein of what this show looks like when you watch, like, the previews and stuff of it. But uh, it was you know, they did Terminator years later. Yeah, well, yeah, Fox know. brought back Terminator as Sarah Connor Chronicles. But that was definitely, uh, seemed to be, that was a whole <laughs> other level of quality than, um, yeah. you know, yeah, the these, equivalent yeah. of, like, you know, like right, silk stockings, silk stockings, or like like VIP with uh, Pamela VIP Anderson Pam, or Pam uh, Greer, <laughs> and then you know when we were in college, Tapper and Ramey brought back. Uh, they had like the Sunday or the Saturday action block, which was like uh, uh, Jack of all trades with Bruce Campbell, and then like Cleopatra yeah. twenty ninety seven yeah. or something. <laughs> this is that. around the same time. Um, Richard Dean Anderson does uh, Stargate, the show. That Stargate is a show. perfect example of, yeah, uh, you know, of the, that kind of television that was happening. Of the era. And then, you know, you had, like, you know, Deep Space Mines coming out. They had a lot of different Star Trek, uh, Voyager. You have that. You have uh, a lot of, lot of... So there's a lot of... It seemed it was, like, prior to, like, the streaming sh- series is you have all these shows coming out, and they're on different networks themselves. They're producing almost their own content. Yeah. And they're, uh, you know, so you have a lot of... They're picking out... I, I feel like there were probably... There's a list of all these other shows that probably were, or they even would do uh, movies that would go nowhere. There's like a 2003 or four Poseidon Adventure TV show pilot that Brian Brown's in. That's like three hours long. That I guess just was a pilot and didn't go anywhere with uh, Peter Weller as well. Yeah. And they shot that, and that's right around. I forget what year the um, uh, what's his face, the German director uh, who re- redid Poseidon Adventure with Kurt Russell and everybody did uh, yeah. Wolfgang Peterson. That's like right around 2005 or six. He redid it, but there was a TV show for that. So sometimes you get these pilots for these shows that don't even go anywhere. I mean, they made a Crow TV series. Like you said, that's crazy. Robocop, the TV series. They had that too. Um, you know, we could just start naming ones that weren't there. Ghostbusters, <laughs> the TV series. Yeah, um, they're also, um, you know, it's uh, as far as I could tell, like the biggest thing to mention about uh, – this, what I find interesting about the FX, the TV series, is the first season starred, um, one of the stars of it was Carrie Ann Moss. And so it's interesting to think that she's in only in the first season, and since you and I didn't discover this show, we, I wasn't able to really watch any of it. But um, she's in the first season, and that first season is 96 to 97, and uh, she... 98. There's a very real chance that she didn't return to the second se- for the second season because she might have got cast in the matrix 
uh, yeah. by that point and left the show and you to and go I, do that. We were saying we don't know because it, this passed by us. Uh, if this aired in the states, or if this was an Australian show or something. Yeah. Well, looking yeah, online I mean, she's now, not Australian, but looking online now, it looks like the, 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 it might have actually been a Canadian show. Or there's oh, a chance okay. that maybe it was just shot in Canada because everything was shot in Canada then. Yeah, um, even these two movies. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. I would be said it could have been Australian because if you look on YouTube, there's like a commercial for the pilot. But it's for an Australian television show, uh, station. That's why I was like, I don't ah. know if it, I don't know if it's as if it's Australia or not because it's like yeah. the the hit FX series, series FX premiering later tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's right after Neighbors FX. <laughs> yeah. So you so you don't yeah you don't know it, it, so it's and did you see is there a Leo character? Uh, it looks like there is a Leo character played by an actor named uh, Kevin Dobson, who. Kevin uh, Dobson is you would know him if you saw him he's really familiar you'd be like oh that guy I'm trying to look oh to that see, dude I'm trying to look to see what he's in uh, to name off off the top of my head but he was in a lot of television and stuff when we were kids um, so then you do have the ba- I wonder if they do just took our idea like we just said and made it like a crime they're like a crime fighting team you know and he's only uh, in the first you know, season but uh, it could have been for the first season anyway that's worth looking at oh too. Kevin Dobson Kevin Dobson's from uh, freaking Kojak Kevin yeah. Dobson was a long, yeah, Long Island Railroad. He's Crocker. He was a Long Island Railroad uh, conductor on the LIR, and then he got a, a break doing Kojak. He's Crocker, and then he's also his big show was uh, he did he did Kojak in the seventies, but then he also had a other big show uh, in the eighties. It was Knots um, Landing, which was a show. That's that it. Knots Landing was a big show. Yeah, so that yeah. was his second career in the eighties. He came back for the Kojak TV movies, and he's in Knots Landing. Yeah, and, and uh, so oh, that's pretty cool. The him playing the um, I don't know why Kevin Dobson. Yeah, the Leo character. So that's that's pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, so that's yeah they grounded it that way. It's even remember in the late nineties there was a minute they even tried to redo Kojak. They had Ving Rhames. Or was that maybe two thousand two or three? Oh yeah, I do. But they did that. Uh, they did a USO they did a USA show with with Ving Rhames as Kojak. And that was, I don't think that last past the season, but there was a lot of, it's, it's really weird if you go back then to see all these shows that were, you know, they were just looking for, I guess this is what kind of they're doing now. They're just looking for product to, uh, to, 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 to make these shows out of, uh, that were already stuff there like the crow or Robocop for Christ's sakes, or, you know, you know, another one. I mean, I used to watch alienation religiously. I love that. Yeah. Show. I love that movie. show too. The alienation. And also there's that world of the worlds, uh, television show. World of the, which I loved. Yeah. Late eighties. That was pretty crazy. And that at the time is crazy because they're basing that off the 50 show. And there's a lot of, there's a couple seasons of that show. The guy from predator, um, punch or whatever his name yeah. is. Um, he's in that war of the world show. And, there's a lot of references Who to the 50 show. It's also in a couple they, of episodes of MacGyver, by the way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it all comes around. But yeah, so it's so weird to think, that, you know, because they, they at one point, I think they show the alien ship from the 50s. They unearthed yeah. it. And, and the aliens the alien. look like the ones from the 50s. Yeah, yeah, very terrifying. But they add that thing in where they have the aliens take over dead bodies and they have the arm come up. That used to scare me. Like, you'd see, like, the, yeah. and they would take the, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> come out of that. the chest. Yeah, it was all, it was very scary. And the, the people were rotting, you know, so the three main people, they were, like, taken in the pilot. And the three main bad guys are, like, in mountains, like, out, out in the, the, I don't know, out, out west, 
hiding out in mountains and through the through the, they're like in these rotting bodies talking. It was very scary. I should go back and watch that show. Didn't they just do a new one a couple of years ago? Or they're doing now? There's a War of the Worlds series. There is a series. I, I haven't like, seen it, but I've seen it like that. It's on. Yeah, yeah. So have I. I should go back and watch that other one because that was terrifying. <laughs> but uh, well, anyway. unfortunately, so, I don't. I didn't think to look to see if there's a novelization for either one of these babies. But uh. oh, I didn't even <laughs> think of that either. You know, Hopefully we were doing not. a double teach. A double feature. I mean, this is the third. We did the Ninja Turtles, uh, like you, you brought up. We did do Wizard of Oz. Those were both sequels, technically. Um, so, man, those were fun. A lot of people liked that episode. One guy didn't. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry, dude. <laughs> sorry. I, I, sometimes we do get... The problem is is that we're, we're going off the cuff, and we have as much as of the stuff we have. I, nine times out of ten, will say the thing wrong or name or something. So sometimes you realize in the more editing, like, do. fuck. There was a, we'll put a little we did you know, a side put cast. a little asterisk after it. We did a sidecast way back in the day for the Podwest. I don't know if it ever I don't know if it ever aired here, but if we ever put it on here, but the Batman one where I was like calling to say the wrong Robin the whole goddamn time. We were talking about the history of Batman. We both make yeah. mistakes. We don't have you know fact checkers. We don't have producers to be like you know like you're saying yeah, the wrong. It whispered in our ear. Yeah, you you said you said Tim Conroy instead of Tim Conway. You know, I'm I'm, I'm saying it's Tim Conway voicing Tim Conroy. <laughs> you know, so yeah. So anyway, we, we, we try to do our best. FX, a hell of a double feature. I'm glad we did this. Yeah, and then like I want to see I want to see what the reaction is. Hopefully, you know I don't know. It's going to be a real interesting one to see what the what the audience reaction. I didn't expect watch. anybody to give a crap about Nighthawks, but Nighthawks did pretty well. So, sure, Mark for Death, you know. So yeah, we we we're, we're pulling these out of our ass this year. So hopefully, uh, this little double feature will be nice, and people will harken back. Like, when's the last time you thought about FX? You know, so great movies, and given given some of the Denny he some love, and given some of the, the Brian Bryans. Brown some love, the Brian's, the Brian, the Brian's. <laughs> People always talk about the Corys, but everybody forgets to talk about the Brian's, the Brian's, because <laughs> the Brian's had a big impact on our lives, you know, and especially since Denny he just passed away, which is sad. Yeah, so which we um, actually, you know. I think we mentioned that we had planned on doing this even before he passed away. I think. Yeah, we were talking about it, this and then he passed the away, and then we. We brought it up. He died, but I don't remember if we brought it up in the Black Hole special we did or we brought it up in another special we recorded that we haven't released yet. So I don't know. But we might. We did make mention of it while we were recording that he had just passed, and it was unrelated to COVID uh, in, in my hometown of New Haven, which is sad. So um, God bless him. Good old Darby. Derby. Derby. It's pronounced Darby in English. Derby, Connecticut. But... Uh, yeah, it's, it's and then you bring up a good point. You, I don't ever remember him young. He's always it's like Charles Durning. He's always just like ah, you know, this. So, um, yeah. lovely, lovely guy, and you know Brian Brown doing stuff. So uh, be great. Maybe then. Then there was a rumor in 2010 at the end of this that they were talking about remaking FX, the original, yeah. into another theatrical movie. But then that never came about. You know, it'd be tough to always, do now because and all that. practical effects are not as much of a thing now as they were then. Yeah, and it's not really like a people are like, eh, you know, it's that's why I you wonder how the first one plays now for people because that you know, we pulled the curtain back on that luster and sheen of all that. So that's all commonplace now. Yeah. But back then it was also new witness protection or squibs and special effects, you know. Like the scene when they put it on Jerry Orbach, they have this big elaborate thing they're gonna put on his face so he gets a headshot, but then you see them start putting it on and they're gonna put the wig on, but then when he's done it's just his face like he looks perfect. <laughs> You know, it's like, you yeah, know, there's yeah. nothing, it's a little funny, you know, so I, you'd think he'd have a little, you know, but, you know, 
Great, but great. I mean, you know, all, all across the board, Cliff the Young, Mason Adams, oh, yeah. Orbach, great cast, in the everybody. First one. It's, uh, yeah, and, and even in, in the second one too, all these different people that you haven't thought of in a long time. Well, you, you know, know, this was a good, this was a great example of I feel like what the original intention of this show was, which was to like go back and revisit movies that you know maybe we don't think about so often but yeah. that we all have that like people Throw of our generation love. have nostalgia for like you know through the years we've gotten caught up in you know we try to do an eclectic uh selection of movies but uh obviously the ones that most people get excited about and listen to are the ones for movies that are super popular like star wars or indiana jones and so uh we do those but the original concept of the show was we were going to do like really abstract things and then we realized that like you can't do uh, Mind Warp as like your second episode because nobody's seen mm. Mind Warp. <laughs> yeah, or the Flash TV show pilot for 1990. Uh, but also we were doing stuff in our comfort zone, like Batman. It's like we're oh, hitting sure. big movies for, and our, even something for like, our generation. This is definitely, for me, in the same area, the same genre of like Remo Williams. Re- Remo, I was going to say yeah. Remo Williams. Exactly. It's like they're about Remo. the same time. They're movies that like I yeah. remember very fondly from either going to my dad's house and seeing them on cable or renting them at my dad's house and they're like sure. fun adventure type movies but they're not the kinds of movies that people talk about a lot nowadays you know what i mean they kind yeah. of have almost gotten forgotten a little bit aside from people like you and me and and uh you know members yeah. of, of our listening audience who uh remember these movies fondly also yeah especially with remo remo has such a uh a content of those books he's based off of so I don't know how those are surviving, but he had like a hundred. I forget how there was a, like a, a crazy insanity yeah. output of books. The score, for the remote character. the score for Remo just got remastered and uh, a, a new release on CD, and I think released on vinyl for the first time recently. On is that Conti too? Uh, no, that was Craig Saffin, who also did okay. uh, Last Starfighter, which we oh yeah, we which, which did we here. did on the show a long time ago. He also did um, Friday the Thirteenth Part Four. Uh, and he scored, uh, calling it back to earlier in this episode, where I actually name-dropped him, he scored uh, Fade to Black, which is one of the posters on Brian Brown's Oh, there wall. you go. <laughs> That's funny. You know, And it's just, you, you, you look at all these people, it all connects. Clifty Young was on the craft. We did that, what, last year? He was in Flight of the Navigator, which we did some years ago. So yeah. you look at all these people that just randomly show up that we're like, oh, yeah, it was him. Or, you know, Mason Adams, you know, of yeah, yeah. you know, all things. We've, you know, so it's, well, as we get further fun. and further into doing the show, there's these connections sure. seem to, you know, present connected. themselves even more. There's always like, you know, now I feel like we're always saying like, I'm, or I'm testing you. Like, do you remember what move, what episode yeah, we did? I'm like, no. <laughs> Where this abstract character actor from 1979 yeah. was it? Art Carney. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, so we hope you like this uh, this episode, this double feature. Uh, you could check us out on all the social medias. We have our own page, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. We have our Facebook page. We have our Instagram page. We have our Twitter page. You can like us, leave us comments, message us, suggest stuff, be part of the growing community. We're available on a lot of platforms that uh, wherever you're listening for the podcast. We're thinking about doing some other fun things in the future that we, you know, we might tell you about coming up. Uh, I've got Blood in the Streets, my book that came out in, uh, some years ago. You can get that uh, in paperback, ebook, or audio book. 
it's a great read nowadays uh, with everything going on. Uh, it's a historical fiction and thriller. Um, but, you know, if people are still not working, it gives you something to do. Uh, and, Blake, what do you got? Uh, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers is my book um, where I interview composers who have done horror movie scores as well as many other scores. Um, I've kind of started dabbling with doing Score to Death, the podcast again, like I said earlier in this Ooh. episode. Um, I interviewed Bill Conti and Ted Nugent. I got a, a, I'm not set to do it on a regular basis anymore, but I'm kind of easing my way back into it. I might be interviewing somebody pretty cool in a couple of days. Easy, and, baby. Um, and, and you get your new book coming out. And uh, so far, so good. As far as I can tell, uh, Score to Death 2 uh, will should be released in the fall of 2020. So coming up hopefully nice. soon, if it doesn't get postponed um, for, because of the state of the world at the moment. But yeah. we seem to be on track as far as I can tell. So That's uh, good. Hopefully soon. it'll get out before the world ends. But... Uh, I thank you very much for listening. This was a very fun uh, walk down memory lane for me. Oh, it brought it back. It brought it back. Man. Uh, what do we got coming up next week? Next month? I don't even remember. I'll tell you once uh, we stop recording, because that's one that I am very <laughs> excited let, about. Let, let, me know, <laughs> let me know now. <laughs> okay, I got to find out what it is. So, everybody, we hope you're staying safe. We hope you're doing well. Take care of yourselves. Be kind to each other, everybody. Please, we will see you soon. Uh, please, you know, check out our back catalog. We've got a crap load of stuff. If you're just joining us and you like us, um, you know, we've got a lot of content out. We have even have some people who say they listen to our episodes more than once, which is really nice to hear. You know, that's really cool. Um, you know, sometimes we have to listen to them more than once to edit them. So that's sometimes is fun. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, keep us alive. Let people know about who don't listen to this. You know, let your friends know. Tell your parents. Uh, get your parents' permission before you dial. And, uh, you know, b- before you know it, we'll be seeing you very soon next month with a brand new episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, the podcast. Later. Later.